This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the renaissance of men. You are the renaissance. Do you feel that? The window of existence closing on you as you scroll through your feed? Are you idling? Have intentions you tell yourself you'll get around to soon? Feel you have time? This world, our lifestyle, has fucked us all into being junkies. We live one dopamine hit to the next. Whether it be on social media, the next banger song, the next sugar rush, caffeine buzz, the next drink or jerk off session. Your world is chopped down into bits and you live strung out from one hit to the next. It causes us to lose perspective. This unprecedented abundance lets us feel comfortable while we hurtle towards the yawning grave, our real intentions, our purpose, and true fulfillment ever pushed back. The dopamine carrots sate us and let us feel artificially satisfied for the moment and hollow afterwards, like a man smearing cum off his hands with a disappointed brow furrowed in post-nut clarity and self-disgust. These false satisfactions pacify the thundering rush of energy that impels the proliferation of our life force, quells the howling con in our souls, castrates us from the greatest source of impetus to conquer that we have, our own dissatisfaction and hunger for more. Don't cave to siren calls that ease you bearing your present station. Let your discomfort drive you with the madness of an unreasonable man to the achievement of things not dreamt of in common hours. Stop spinning your wheels. Engage. Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. That will probably be the first time you've heard that voice, but you might recognize the words. I'm not sure I'm qualified to say who my next guest is, but I can say what he does. He writes, in a direct and powerful style that feels at once like a slap in the face, a punch in the gut, and a kick in the ass. He makes images, using just a few characters and precisely chosen pictures that speak as loud as his words. He reads, drawing his philosophy from great minds of all eras and persuasions. And finally, he thinks, broadly, deeply, and thoroughly, about issues that inform, motivate, and educate his thousands of devoted followers. His name is The Howling Void, and he runs an Instagram account that I think is fair to say is one of the most inspiring ones I follow, and also the most challenging. And I know I'm not alone. My good friends Devin, Aaron, Jameson, and Jeremy suggested I reach out to him for a podcast interview. And when I did, not only did he accept, but I was surprised to find it was his first ever appearance on a podcast. This was even more surprising to me when I found out just how much of value he has to say. Over the course of our sprawling, encyclopedic three-hour conversation, we covered topics as diverse as the critical need for both individuals and society to have a telos or purpose, 
architecture and how the design of our environment from our apartments to cities affects our development in ways we can't imagine. His deep respect for the special forces community, even though he's never been a part of it, and how technology has dissolved our society's shared notions of history, possibly forever. We also talked about why it's vital to follow the path of most resistance in our lives, the importance of letter writing, along with entropy, mythology, telekinesis, alchemy, apotheosis, psychedelics, brotherhood, Marcus Aurelius, and what it means to have a conscience. Along the way, we also find out a bit about his fascinating background in history, the origins of the Howling Void Project, and what he'll be doing next. Like I said, we covered a lot of ground, and I was smiling the whole time. And as this is my seventh interview podcast, I can't help but be grateful for lucky number seven. I made a list of all the books, videos, and accounts we mentioned in the chat so you can follow along in the show notes, but you might want to have a search engine handy. It is my great pleasure and honor to introduce to you for his first online interview ever, my seventh guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, The Howling Void. The Howling Void, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hey, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here, man. It's something I've been wanting to do for a while, get into it. So I'm excited. Well, I'm, I'm excited to be your, uh, your first podcast, and I'm, I'm really interested in this interview. I've got a whole bunch, of, whole bunch of questions for you, and I'm also excited to see where this uh, conversation goes because you're obviously a man of many interests and many talents, so I'm looking forward to exploring that with you. Yeah, I think it's an interesting practice that I've heard people kind of propose where you say, hey, if you could describe yourself with just one word, mm-hmm. if you could boil yourself down to one word, what would it be? And I think it's a lot more telling than maybe having to do like a 140 character thing because then you're trying to signal stuff. You're trying to advertise yourself and show complexity. There's a certain level of duplicity there. But if you're really kind of looking for self-knowledge and you have to boil yourself down to one word, you know, I know someone who would say, oh, I'm, I'm determined. Uh, I know several women who immediately jumped on uh, I'm nurturing mm. or, or maybe I'm empathetic. For me, the one word I knew instantly as soon as I heard the question. It was curious. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I'm the, the cat with uh, nine lives, and I'll probably lose them all in pursuit of that. What number are you on right now? <laughs> probably five. Probably five. Oh, that's a good number. Well, so, so I guess my first question really is about your, your personal background to the extent that you want to share it and the background of the Howling Void project as it grew out of your background, I suppose. Well, I mean, there's reasons I'm anonymous mm-hmm. and uh, depending on how the project develops, that may or may not, what, whatever the path is up the mountain face, remain advantageous or may eventually have to be discarded. Really just a guy who, who reads a lot and does a lot of uh, hard shit. I mucked around when I was younger because we, we grow up in this culture that is a, a pastiche of the medieval and the corporate. We all kind of have this combination of guilt and ego, superstition and reductionism, because our culture has been running operating systems that are pursuing different goals in different arenas and no goals, go, no goals at all in mm-hmm. other arenas. It's kind of like what Nietzsche talked about, the death of God, which mm-hmm. is probably the most misconstrued quote of all time. It wasn't, uh, if anyone's ever read the vignette, it's not about 
atheism. He was saying, hey, the implications of the Enlightenment and Industrial Revolution, they're not compatible with the substructure of society that we've had for the last millennia. Mm-hmm. And the throne of purpose is basically empty right now. And that's going to cause some real dysfunction down the line. And in the vignette, the townspeople say, oh, you're crazy. And he says, oh, okay, okay, wait, <laughs> wait a couple generations and, and see what happens. And uh, here we are, mm-hmm. you know, I think that the howling void, which is a phrase I, I lifted from uh, Cormac McCarthy, mm-hmm. one of my favorite authors, uh, Blood Meridian, No Country for Old Men, mm-hmm. The Road, stuff like that. I think civilizationally, individually, particularly with young men and women, we have a howling void shaped hole where we should have meaning in our lives. That's what the howling void is. It's that mm-hmm. absence of meaning, that absence of collective purpose, that absence of something to subject yourself to, a discipline to subject yourself to, so that you can progress and you can grow. Because freedom without checks, freedom without end, the freedom to self-destruct, self-destructs our own baser natures, our own weakness. If you don't have a why, you're not going to leverage yourself against that. We all really have two kind of drives, homeostasis and crystallization. You know, the homeostasis is your body saying, hey, we have enough energy. We're comfortable where we are. We don't want to be too cold. We don't want to be too hot. We don't want to do any kind of expenditure that's unnecessary. And all the conveniences of modernity eventually kind of develop into necessities as our skills that those conveniences were meant to kind of enhance. They eventually atrophy away. If you take the escalator enough, eventually you're not able to walk up the stairs and you end up riding around on the, the Walmart go-kart wheelchair. You can't remember a single phone number. Yeah. Someone pointed that out the other day. They say, hey, you know, can, can you call your mom without the phone remembering the number for you? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's jarring for a lot of people because a lot of people have no idea what their mom's number even is. They just tap mom. Or they say it. They don't even tap it anymore. They just say, you know, Siri, call mom. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't talk to the phone, man. Yeah. I don't either. talk to it. No, definitely. I don't talk to them. I don't have, I don't have any of those Alexas in my house. I got no cameras in here either that people would allow surveillance devices and invite surveillance devices into the living room is absolutely beyond my comprehension. Oh yeah. Or, or the, the PS5 that scans everything. You know, there's, you know, the meme going around of the child's first words to its mother asking it for anything is the child's talking to its mom and it's, it's asking for Alexa it's saying, Alexa, do this, Alexa, do that. Oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah. That's heavy. That's heavy. Well, I mean, I saw, I saw a couple of years ago, there was, a, there was an article and, and it approached this subject very casually, but there's a lot to reflect on in it where they took little kids and they gave them printed photographs and they put the printed photographs on the table in front of the kids and the kids had grown up with devices and the kids took the photographs and they were like swiping, you know what I mean, with two fingers and pinching, trying to get the photograph to enlarge. And the, the article was like, oh, ha, 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 isn't that cute? And even when I read it, it's like, oh, that's kind of cute. That's kind of funny technology. But then it's like, they don't know how to interact with the physical world. They're so used to living in screens that when you hand them a physical object, they mistake the physical object for the device. And I think that's really, really shocking and frightening in little kids. But where does that manifest for adults as well in ways that we're not even really aware of? Well, 
look at the situation right now for people's reference. We're like uh, a week or so after the, the presidential election. I mean, we've entered hyper reality where it's impossible to distinguish between reality and a simulation of reality. No, no one knows what's going on right now. You know, is is a, a fascist regime about to be replaced by enlightenment or is a, a soft Bolshevik coup underway? Trump doesn't know. Biden definitely doesn't know. Kamala doesn't know, if only for polygraph reasons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, CNN doesn't know. Fox doesn't know. BitChute doesn't know. The Chinese, the Russians, no one knows what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. So I think that this is a really big moment, actually. Yeah. Because for the few millennia that recorded history has gone down, the mechanisms of recording history have been one way. When mm -hmm. you etch in stone, when you write on a papyrus scroll, when you print a book, radio, television, these all are consolidated sources that then disperse information in one direction from authority to the masses. Mm -hmm. The internet and then smartphones allowed that communication highway to become two-way. And now not just the authoritative version or perspective is recorded, every perspective is recorded. Mm -hmm. And people might despise Hitler, but love Alexander because of the respective winners and losers who wrote those sides of that history. I mean, if you look at what Alexander did, he'd go into Thebes and he executed the entire city mm -hmm. because Thebes, which was already in his territory, they'd heard that Alexander had died on the front and they rejoiced. So he turned around had the whole logistics supply train march for like three months back to Thebes just to kill every single person in the city because he'd heard that they were happy that he died. And then he went on, you know, and, and, and waged a whole genocide for years in Afghanistan where mm -hmm. his, his policy was tribal extermination so he could su secure the supply routes so he could get to the Indus River. Mm -hmm. So there's this one authoritative version of history from authority written by the, the winners that we have up until pretty much right now. And I think that that's fractured in a way that we'll never be able to put back together now. Mm. I mean, whatever outcome happens in this moment, half of people won't believe it. And right. that half of people is going to be further fractured into, you know, you have your people who sincerely believe QAnon and you have like, you know, your David Ick kind of oh <laughs> reptilian people. But then you'll have people who just think it's corruption or people who, who think it's, you know, a, a Bolshevik kind of globalist situation. Uh, and then you have everyone on the other side who subscribes to the woke mimetic complex mm -hmm. and is concerned uh, with a, a narrative of decolonialization. All of these realities are being recorded right now. And if we can't discern what's real in the present moment, then there's going to be no way for, you know, the distance of history to provide clarity. I think mm -hmm. the illusion that the further you get from an event, the more clarity you have on it. I think that's really just the result of rival perspectives dying off mm -hmm. the further you get away from an event. And these perspectives are now recorded for all time. So the narrative is fractured and it's like Humpty Dumpty. All the king's horses and all the king's men aren't going to be able to put it back together again. History as a single narrative phenomena is over. You know, I saw that you, I saw that that was one of your recent, uh, your recent posts. I think it had the Ouroboros on it. I'd have to go back and look, but 
what you describe in that is actually, um, that's really resonating with me in a powerful way because for the past nine months or so, there's been this deep unease that I think has emerged in society in multiple different ways. Everyone shares it, but there's looking at it in a different way. And certainly I, I share it. And I think a lot of it, as you describe that, really feels like, oh, wow, we've lost, totally lost the sense of shared narrative. And it sort of started with the whole C-19 thing where some people, of course, were on one side and some were on the other side. And there really doesn't seem to be any middle ground anymore. And that is its own phenomenon. But what you're describing is something very different. The inability to construct a shared narrative about reality is something, is an unease that we're all sharing because it's completely ahistorical. At no point in history was a nation or a people, to the extent you want to call, say, the United States that, unable to construct a large enough shared uh, narrative, shared reality to move forward collectively. That's how nations survived, as they constructed these shared narratives and they advanced based on those narratives. Whether they were true or not is is irrelevant to whether or not they're effective. Um, And now we're unable to establish that shared narrative almost as a species in some way. There's definitely multiple competing factions and that helps me understand a lot of the unease that I've been feeling, certainly about the future. Is like, how are we going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, as you say? Yeah, I, I think that we need a telos. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Greeks had this word, telos, that it meant much more than purpose. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like the, the ultimate or supreme aim of a man's endeavors, why he existed. It was on a personal level, but it was also on a societal level. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when we live in a world where uh, we've torn down religion, patriotism, heroes, myths, marriage, family, community, nature, uh, even the office, you know, we've replaced that Mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, commute from home. This atomization, we tore all these things down and we replaced them with nothing or Mm -hmm. worse plug them with saccharine substitutes that were designed in boardrooms to extract value from you, Mm -hmm. like commodities. Mm -hmm. It's not that any of those institutions didn't need critique, but that the nihilism of revolution leaves us where we are, kind of drifting untethered, scatter-minded, you know, with the throne of purpose empty and up for grabs. So, you know, civilizations will tear themselves apart from within, be swamped from without. Purposeless men bloat and wither, you know. Mm -hmm. Women will calcify and dry up. Sans purpose, there's like just cosmic television static and a laughing abyss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what do you what do you do as an individual to respond to that? Mm-hmm. I think you know your first step is you have your conscience. Your conscience is incorruptible, and it's telling you what to do. Nature is not mute. You know there mm-hmm. is a discernible pattern at play. There's a story at play, and all stories are reaching for a goal. And it's not necessary for us to be able to determine what that goal is or grasp the story in our mind. I I think the idea that a primate mind is an adequate tool to fathom reality, you know, how many atoms are in a blade of grass, you know, more than you can account for. And then you look out at a whole field of grass and your mind just kind of renders that as one thing. Oh, a field of grass. You're not thinking about you know, the molecular structure of the grass or the soil or the worms or the sunlight and the photosynthesis. And, and that's just a field of grass, something that simple, not in global information spacefaring, you know, civilization like we have. Mm. We're like sea urchins trying to talk about truth, you know, like we're not equipped for it. But the world simply is that story. Like I was saying before, you know, freedom 
without checks, you know, it kind of leads to this self-destructive hedonism that's pretty hollow. Whereas happiness, just on a, on a personal level, it's usually just demonstrable incremental progress towards a goal. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the basic telos to say, if you can say nothing else to yourself, especially as a man that I'm making an incremental progress towards a goal every day, whatever that goal is that I freely choose, that's enough of a purpose to get a lot of men moving today who wouldn't otherwise be, be doing so. Um, but just uh, regarding the, the field of grass, you know, when you, when you describe that, I think about s- similar topics in my way, certainly not fields of grass, but certainly, you know, I look around my everyday environment and I say, how much do I know about the things in my environment that has nothing to do with their surface characteristics? So say I just pick up this pen that's on my desk. If I toss out the surface characteristics of my pen, what do I know? Where did it come from? Who made it? Where was the factory that it, where that it came from? Where did the oil that come from that went into the plastic? You know, stuff like that. But the thing is, that level of, of speculation is not, we're not designed to function in that way with a primate mind because we're so concerned with sort of the on the ground function of living that we're not able to live in the speculative kind of realm where we can really, it's, it's practical to really wonder about the number of atoms in the blade of grass. You know what I mean? So we're, we're sort of, our society pushes us under that level in some way that's our default, but we're also capable of that level of wonder. You get what I'm saying? So it's kind of like we're, Absolutely. we're both. Absolutely. I think that a lot of people get very trapped in this pursuit of truth. And I agree with you. It's, it's not necessarily useful at all to yeah. be aware of the, the blades of grass. I think that that kind of thought, I mean, it, it gets tied into reductionism, mm-hmm. which is very disempowering to the individual. And I think it's a, a spiritually bankrupt way of viewing reality. You know, a dissected frog doesn't tell you about a frog. You know, a a vivisected mind will not tell you about the wetness of a lover's kiss or the texture of warm bread or what is jealousy (laughs) or what is awe or fulfillment, Mm -hmm. what is problem solving. I think if you view the world in a mechanistic, reductionized way, I mean, that's going to come across in a kind of soulless expression. And I think if you view the world in a energetic way, if you kind of tip the scales of what you value in terms of truth versus use, because we can't say what's true, but you can definitively say what's useful. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that's a very useful metric to kind of have in mind truth versus use. Because if you're, if you're driving a sports car, it's not going to help you to be aware of uh, the pistons firing and and yeah the the exact ratio of the fuel injector thing you're going to need to be looking ahead at the coming curve in the road which is a totally different experience than the mechanism that's driving it you know that's your use versus truth for you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well it's like lifting your arm it's useful to think i'm going to lift my arm but you don't actually know the truth of how you lift your arm about the muscles firing about the tendons pulling in the bones like you have no idea how your arm actually moves but it moves yeah, I mean, in effect, like you you desire to lift your arm and it moves. That's at its most basic level. That's uh, telekinesis. That's mind over matter. <laughs> you you have dead animals and soil and water that's been reassembled after you ate it. You know, it, into the matter of your arm, and you're moving it with your mind. Yeah, pretty special. That 
it's telekinesis right there, you know? So that's, that's right. Alchemy inside, inside our stomachs as we, you know, digest food and somehow it turns into, you know, emotions. Like how does, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the big questions. Well, so I'm I, I'm starting to get curious about who who the man is who's who's thinking these these grand cosmic thoughts and also grounding them in usefulness because a lot of men they're they're capable of having the big the big thoughts but they don't know how to bring them down into the 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 field of the field of battle that is our everyday lives and of course there are plenty of men that are good at living on the field of battle but aren't able to connect their say warrior spirit to any higher thoughts like which which direction did you come from or was this something that just kind of emerged out of you as you as you grew up hmm. i think uh, i drifted around my late teens you know rejecting the systems i was brought up with and personally encountered that howling void of nihilism mm-hmm. uh and just through trial and error pretty quickly found out that a lot of what we were taught was advertising in a way, you know, Yeah. a lot of what we're, we're, we think we want is not really what we want. Mm. And then you begin to find out a lot of the things that you think you should avoid is exactly what you should do. Mm. All right. So, you know, the idea of, Hey, you know, spend all this time and effort and work and everything and, and get that sports car. I've driven maybe every kind of car under the sun when I worked as a, a valet at a casino. And you know what? The Aston Martin smudges. Once you're in it for 15 minutes, you become completely numb to it. Yeah, mm. it looks really cool. But if you, and if you have the means to get that toy, you know, by all means, get that toy. But so many guys devote a lot of how much of their mental capital gets devoted into lusting after what's essentially a gas-powered wheelchair that has a cool shape. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's a killer ad campaign, <laughs> you know, and they think that how much of their life are they willing to work and trade their existence, their limited time on earth to get that toy for, I don't, I don't think the return on investment there is, is going to work out very well for you at all. Right. Or if you think about, you know, kind of what, what MTV kind of raised millennials to think, you know, Hey, let's, let's. Go to a dark warehouse that's going to have deafening music so we can't talk. Let's have flashing strobe lights. And then let's uh, chemically lobotomize ourselves, shut off our frontal lobes so that we don't feel too awkward when we violate millennia of evolutionarily and social mores by having sex with a stranger. Uh, And then just the more strangers you have sex with, the cooler you are. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I think you're going to find that the sex without emotions is like chewing without swallowing. Mm. That's a great analogy. The alternative path, I think, is fear illuminates the path. Mm-hmm. I think that fear is like a compass. You know, Joseph Campbell said, uh, the cave you most fear to enter uh, holds the treasure you seek. Mm-hmm. Fear is like a flashing neon sign. The thing that scares you the most is exactly the thing that's going to be the most fulfilling for you when you get it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so reliable when you look inside and you're like, Hey, what am I putting off? You can look at it over the, like on any scale, like o- over the course of your day. Hey, what am I kind of most scared of doing today? You know, is it taking a cold shower? Is it finally knocking out those work emails? Is it going for a run after I lift? You know, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, bust out some deadlifts, but 
Uh, maybe I'm scared of going on the run or maybe it's vice versa. Maybe you suck at swimming, but then you can scale that out over your life. Like, hey, you know, do I want to pursue a life other than some kind of mercantile existence? You know, do I want to do some kind of service? Am I scared of trying for med school? Am I scared of trying to join some kind of special warfare community? Uh, am I scared to put my ideas out to the world and write them or, or try to be an author or be an entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. I think that we're so caught up in this idea of the pursuit of happiness. And I think that that's ass backwards. It's the happiness of pursuit. No, I love it. And I, I think that the path of most resistance is uniformly going to be the most fulfilling. It's going to hurt the most. But I bet that you'll find pain and pleasure in equal measure. The more it hurts, the, the better it's going to be. Absolutely. You talk about the, the dreams that were sold to different generations, sold to the millennial generation and Generation X, all the, different, all the different dreams of the pursuit of happiness. And when you wake up from that, when you go through the process of, of nihilism or whatever disillusionment process you need to go through, the realization dawns that the alternate paths are almost scorched earth socially. You know, you just look around and say, these are the, all the directions that everyone in my family and all my friends tell me, all the force feedback from my environment tells me I'm not supposed to go in, the books I'm not supposed to read, the things I'm not supposed to think, especially the ways I'm, I'm not supposed to dress or look or behave. And you find that that's the first, that's the first guardian at the gate is to overcome that social pressure. But then it doesn't get easier from there. That process of self-confrontation, of confronting one's fear only continues, but it's so deeply fulfilling. That's the, and that's, it's rewarding in a very powerful way. A hundred percent. I mean, uh, it's something athletes will talk about all the time, you know, especially endurance athletes, you know, uh, it doesn't get easier. You just get better. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when you're pushing for a PR, like it, it hurts as much the first time as it does the thousandth time, the, the numbers improve, but, uh, you know, that threshold of what you're capable of, that's always, you know, where what's interesting happens. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned earlier that you like to do hard shit. What what's some of the yeah. hard, what's what's some of the hard shit that you that you like to do? I mean, I like uh, developing in like a seven hundred and twenty degree sphere. You know, I, I want to develop myself in every aspect, mm-hmm. anything physical that's kind of grounded in reality. Not that interested in in ball games, you know, but running swimming, climbing, weightlifting. Uh, Jiu-jitsu is probably one of the number one things I would recommend to anyone. Mm -hmm. It's not concussive. You can do it your whole life. It's, I think that it's philosophy can pretty much be applied to any spectrum of activity. Reading, learning languages, learning instruments, developing social skills, whatever you're lacking in cooking, I think is -hmm. is a big one for, for men cooking, whatever you don't know. I mean, what, what, you know, are you really solid physically, but you aren't into finance, shore up your financial knowledge, you know, are you really good at engineering, but maybe kind of suffer with people, uh, you know, put yourself in situations that force you to, to get better at that. I mean, it's, it's so contextual that, you know, I don't think it's that instructive, you know, for what I kind of personally do. Mm -hmm. It's, it's again, kind of like, Everyone's got to check their own conscience and, and search their own fears. You know, Jordan Peterson loves to tell the story about how when the Knights 
set out in search of the grail. Each one goes into the portion of the forest that appears darkest to him. Mm. And that is kind of a great metric for, for looking what's, what's hard for you. Uh, you answered the question that I was that I was going to ask because one of the blessings of of this uh, technological society we live in is the number of options we have, the number of options for information, the number of options for professional pursuits, the number of options for personal pursuits, the options for travel and activities. More is available to the individual now than at any point in human history. Probably that was even available to some of the great rulers at the time, depending on how far back you want to go. And there's certainly a certain degree of, I would imagine, analysis paralysis for a lot of men potentially where it's like, there's so much that I could do. Where do I begin? And it sounds like your advice would be go to the portion of the forest that looks darkest to you. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Analysis paralysis is a a big one. And I think that uh, creative constraints are are important. You know, you got to focus on what you're doing. I just was seeing uh, Matthew McConaughey talking about how he was doing five things that he was scoring B's in. You know, he was an actor, he was a father, uh, he had a production company, he had a music label, and he was doing something else. And uh, he got a call from his production company, and he didn't want to answer the phone. And his hand kind of paused there, and he goes, why do I not want to answer the phone? And he immediately called his lawyer and said, hey, you know what, shut down the production company, shut down the music company. I don't want to get B's in five things. I want to get A's in three things, Mm -hmm. which kind of directly contradicts what I just said about developing everything, right? (laughs) Right. But (laughs) this is a really important concept that, you know, Twitter reduces everything down to like Game Boy graphics. It reduces the resolution with 140 characters. And people are more interested in stances than actually working things out. They want to signal things for, you know, social standing. But real conversations, actual problem solving, it's never going to be framed in these kind of false dichotomies that everyone wants to frame things in. Is China a strategic rival or is China a trading partner? It's both. It's you know, true. Yeah. If, you, if you picture truth as a pizza with like eight slices, you know, you'll, you'll have your stereotypical, you know, right wing, stereotypical left wing slices of the pizza and you say hey choose one of these two which one of these is true well they're both slices of the pizza and there's six other slices that aren't even being represented there mm-hmm. i think if you can state a statement in a simple sentence i can't really take it seriously it's too simple to be a reflection of reality mm-hmm. i think in order to believe something it has to have a paradoxical quality because then it's it's introducing the caveat, the context, the nuance, and the dichotomy that seems to be a prerequisite for how everything actually works. Everything has two sides, even a coat of paint. Mm-hmm. You know, we we may never see the other side of the coat of paint. It just is in the darkness, pressed up against the wall, but it's there. Mm-hmm. So something that fundamental, I think it's important to contradict yourself. I think that shows a level of sophistication to the idea that gives it merit and that doesn't disqualify it, which is how people kind of apply contradiction. Mm-hmm. But I almost see contradiction as like a, a blue check next <laughs> to the idea saying, hey, this is this is a complicated enough idea that maybe there's something to it. Oh yeah. Oh for sure. Well I mean we we don't that's that's another thing that 
in addition to all the options, we have we have all these options to explore sort of ideationally, but we have so little time with each other to sit down in person or in some sort of synchronous form of communication like we're having here and to actually hash out ideas with people who are opposed to us. Most of my interactions during the day, and I think that's probably true for a lot of people now, given the lockdowns, are through screens. Maybe maybe they're through text, et cetera. And that's a very different kind of proposition than picking up the telephone, even turning off turning off the video and just having a, a, a conversation. Like, And there's this way that having less data creates a more engaging kind of experience with somebody, an engagement form of, of connection. And yet it would seem that the pace of life uh, drives us away from that meaningful kind of high bandwidth kind of communication. Well, you know, it's completely lost is uh, the art of writing letters. Oh, sure. You know, I uh, was in a situation where I was writing letters for a minute and it was it was a completely different aspect of yourself that comes out Mm -hmm. when you're handwriting something in script, Uh, which, by the way, AI can't read script yet. Just throwing that out. Yeah, but uh, (laughs) certainly uh, not mine. (laughs) Even humans can't. (laughs) Yeah. No, if if you want to be a cryptographist, just get a. The doctor's handwriting, right? <laughs> exactly. No, no, no need for uh, the computer kit. <laughs> Is this uh, encrypted? No, it's just my handwriting, dude. <laughs> so, you know, Marshall McLuhan, probably one of the, the greatest thinkers of the 20th century, he had this idea that the medium is the message mm-hmm. and that whatever format you're communicating in, the real message isn't what the content is, but the manner of delivery of the content carries its own implications. Mm-hmm. Television carries different implications than print carries. Uh, you know, print itself carries. Here's a perfect example of what this idea means because it's kind of a heady concept to follow. Gutenberg's press introduced the idea of interchangeable units and maximum efficiency, which is not something that was existing prior to that in the artisanal world of the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And the implications of movable typeface then manifest as the entire managerial system of the industrial revolution and treating people as interchangeable typeface Mm -hmm. not as artisanal employees but just maximizing absolutely everything as interchangeable men and women uh this guy and that guy all the components and uh just that obsession with efficiency McLuhan would argue that that was born out of a culture that kind of derived the implications of valuing that from print. And you can make economic arguments as well. Uh, Stanley McChrystal did a great job of addressing how we kind of shifted into this sterile uh, industrialization uh, in his book, Team of Teams, mm. uh, where he was trying to, he found that uh, the bureaucracy of the military uh, and all of the, the, the separate silos made it completely incapable of combating a fluid, disorganized organization like ISIS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he kind of completely revolutionized how JSOC was organized. Uh, but he goes deep into the cultural underpinnings of why everything in our world is kind of done in this corporate way that I think chafes all of our human dignity i I, you know find me one person who says i love bureaucracy (laughs) you know 
Oh, uh, well, maybe AOC, but <laughs> but uh, outside of Bolshevism, I don't think you're going to find that many people who uh, who are all about it. You mean uh, Stanley McChrystal's book, The General, right? That's the team of teams. Oh, uh, yeah. General Stanley McChrystal. He was uh, in charge of J-Shock before he uh, took charge of the Afghan campaign. Yeah, there's another book that I've been reading recently called Fourth Generation Warfare by um, by Lind. William Lind is his, is his name. I, I don't want to mess up his official military rank, but um, that sort of discusses something similar about how World War One, World War Two were maybe second or third generation warfare kind of conflicts. And then when the United States went into the Middle East, they were confronted with a sort of fourth generation decentralized warfare kind of strategy where you bring in the second or third generation army, which is what we had, into a fourth generation warfare, decentralized, independent actor kind of battlefield, and we just got smoked. And so he put together this this kind of book, which is like which is these individual pods of um of soldiers would have to, and even down to the individual, like the individual soldier would have to be prepared to make potentially significant calls. And the entire conflict locally or perhaps even nationally could could be hinging on how they handle that scenario because you you have these sort of tribal values that percolate outwards from the situation where trust needs to be established between the local the local civilians and the military forces and he breaks it all down in this very brilliant way and sort of talks about how uh, he and his team and the team uh, and the military at the time had to re-educate the American warfighters how to conduct warfare and it's a, it's a really fascinating book it sounds very parallel to what General McChrystal's book is about yeah, I don't know if I would agree that we got smoked, but we certainly were were ineffective in bringing about what what we were trying to do. Right, right, right. You know, uh, I'm reading a book by uh, David Kilcullen, who, who authored Atreus's uh, counterinsurgency strategy, uh, "The Dragons and the Snakes." Of course, the title is a reference to you know when the, the dragon of the Soviet Union died, it was just replaced by a million snakes, and uh, now the whole world has kind of seen what works against the conventional military. A lot of states are adopting more insurgent kind of tactics, mm-hmm. uh, where you see, you know, Russia, Iran, uh, you know, potentially China, uh, adopting, uh, you know, low end of the spectrum proxy warfare kind of stuff, and then you see a lot of the the guerrilla organizations, kind of ironically adopting the behavior of states. If you look at ISIS, you know, trying to Mm-hmm. They were undefeatable as long as they were this completely diaphanous thing. But then as soon as they kind of got this pretension that we're going to hold territory and kind of become a country, well, then they materialized into being material targets, you know, mm-hmm. and it was it was easy to kind of drive them out. Mm-hmm. Bruce Lee is, quote, is swimming to mind, be like water. Exactly, exactly. And I think everyone's kind of learning uh from those who've been behaving like water and that warfare is going to be shifting in that direction more and more. But I think, I think also society as well, just to bring it back to the lived experience at home as more is becoming seemingly very liquid. We talked about, you know, first of all, God is dead and we killed him is the, is the longer version of that quote. But yes, of course, yeah, the, the Nietzsche quote is, is a, it's mournful in a way. And we've also killed our notions of shared history of a shared narrative. Uh, we've killed dreams and family and we've killed you know the home and tradition and that the way that that shows up for me is everything feels very very liquid very fluid and especially over the course of the past year it's been necessary for me to be very fluid in my in my approach to things just even in my approach to my day 
just to ride, just to ride the waves in a way. And in that is a lot of opportunity, crisis and opportunity, I think are the, are the kanji symbol. I think I heard once upon a time. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, yeah. Chaos is a ladder. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The wisdom, the wisdom of the little finger. Yeah. But I, but I think in that there's a real, there's a disorientation, but there's also a real immediate need to orient yourself real quick somehow. And I think that also goes back to your thread about, you know, go, go into the portion of the forest that seems darkest to you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not the survival of the strongest, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the survival of the smartest necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's the survival of the most adaptable. Mm-hmm. That's what the fittest means. It's most fit to your environment. So if your environment's fluid, adaptability is uh, what's important. As far as, you know, finding something that you can hold on to that's not going to be blowing with the winds of all these kind of schizoid ideologies that are flying around or, or the, the changes brought about by technology or whatever, you know, the, the clowns in Washington are doing. Again, I just say your, your conscience is incorruptible. Mm. Like it's, it's a really mysterious thing, how certain it is and how, it, how it's not you. Mm-hmm. You might want to do something and your conscience will tell you, hey, no, you shouldn't do that. It's like there's a separate island of consciousness in your mind mm-hmm. that's like you can engage in conversation with, and it's somehow infallible. Well, let's. Uh, there are a lot of words that I think have been kind of deleted from the English language, at least as we experience it today. One of them for me that I think about is the word shamelessness. We don't really use that word anymore, and I think that describes a lot of people's behavior. There's a lot of talk about pride versus humility, but also on that spectrum is the notion of shamelessness, which we can get, can get into. But let's let's unpack this word of uh, of conscience because it's not one that I hear very often, but it's one that's so important. And I think there might be benefit some some of the guys listening to this to know exactly what is their conscience. Hey, that's a, yeah, right. That's a bigger question than than I'm equipped to answer, man. Like the truth versus use of it is, uh, I yeah, that's one of the biggest questions. It's like asking, you know, who writes dreams? You know, if, if you're experiencing a dream. Part of your mind is rendering the landscape and part of your mind is experiencing and interacting with it. But then you have dream characters who come and someone's writing the script for those characters. Mm-hmm. You know, are they just kind of like paper mache things put up in front of you? Or is like another separate part of your mind kind of like experiencing you from their perspective? This is kind of, it's called Kakule's paradox. Uh Kukule was a, a chemist who figured out the, the benzene structure uh, when it was revealed to him in a dream. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And Cormac McCarthy wrote an essay about this. Uh, There's a whole Wikipedia yeah. entry, by the way, because I looked it up recently about the meaning about dreams. There's a whole Wikipedia entry about sci- great scientists that made discoveries and writers and made discoveries in dreams. Uh, what's the, is it, the, is it not Samuel Taylor Coleridge? What's the... Um, Kublai Khan, that poem came to came to the poet in a dream. Well, he was on opium, but yeah. yeah, I suppose that helps. But that's a recurring that's a recurring theme, though. I mean, Francis Crick. I mean, people people will always kind of say that Crick and Watson kind of hijacked the research to to figure out the double helix of DNA. But uh, you know, he claims that it, it crystallized when he was uh, driving down the Pacific Coast Highway in an LSD reverie. <laughs> uh, I mean, you have uh, Socrates talking about uh his daemon you know he took no mm-hmm. credit for any of his ideas uh the daemon you have artists uh with their muse 
it's it's an interesting question. You know, mm-hmm. where where do these things come from? And I I don't I don't know the answer. <laughs> That's true. I don't think we have to we have to nail the answer down once and for all <laughs> on Renaissance of Men podcast. We figured out what the conscience is. Congratulations, everybody. We did it. <laughs> you, you know what is ironic though is uh, that the idea of the modern scientific tradition arguably started when Descartes reported that an angel told him in a dream that nature would be conquered by number and measure. Hmm. And that's just so profoundly ironic that that idea of reductive mechanical thinking, it was first articulated by someone who credited it to an angel. So That's outstanding. That's like a monument to irony. The cosmic giggle, right? That's right. That's right. Well, I'm sure I wonder if you picked up on the irony of that, like, oh, this is a little strange. Well, so uh, I love the different themes, the different areas of education, the different, whether it be arts or philosophy or uh, music or uh, graphics. I would love to talk to you about your, your graphic design background as well and your writing background. All these different themes sort of begin weaving together into this into this project of the, the howling void, and also you potentially you as an individual. And so, in in viewing through uh, your grid on Instagram, I'm kind of curious how these ideas take shape in the form of a in in the form of a I guess I'll call it a meme in a way, and and the text. Um, do does the meme inspire the text? Does the text inspire the meme? Like how does how does that actually work for you in your in your I guess your process? I guess you might say. As far as graphic design background, I, I have none. <laughs> I trust strength, truth, and beauty. You know, I, I'm a very visual thinker, so hmm. uh, I just know it looks good. I know what I like, and you know, if other people dig it, that's that's awesome too. I I believe that aesthetics are objective. I reject the notion of like relativism on mm-hmm. across almost every spectrum. That's something I kind of rant against pretty often. Uh, so the graphic design says, "Hey, this picture looks neat. I'm, you know, put some gold font over that. Bitches love gold font." <laughs> uh, sometimes I'll see a picture and uh, it'll prompt a thought, and uh, it really it kind of started where uh, I have a best friend who. We've been in communication since, I mean, there's pictures of us being bathed as, as infants in like a kitchen sink together. You oh, know, wow. we've been in pretty much daily communication for, you know, 30 years. We've been in different time zones. There've been times where, uh, you know, we were roommates, but there's been times where we were on different hemispheres, but the conversation never ended. Uh, sometimes, you know, we just kind of artillery lob a bunch of ideas at the other one's direction, you know, while they're asleep and they'll answer when, when they wake up. And uh, I would just kind of like send all these little cool picture montages with a bunch of ideas about it. And he'd eventually said, you know, hey, man, you should just throw this shit on Instagram. Mm. Like, it's it's good. Uh, so I said, OK, if I'm if I'm going to do it, I don't know how many people are going to want to read multi-paragraph abstract posts on a platform dominated by OnlyFans and 50 <laughs> models. But I like Instagram. I know there's a couple of accounts that I dig on there. I mean, it's the only social media uh, that I had. So I said, OK, well how do you make an Instagram? And uh, I immediately kind of thought of Peter Thiel's brilliant book, Zero to One. Peter Thiel, of course, one of the founders of uh, PayPal, first mm-hmm. investor in, in Facebook, uh, founder of Palantir, billionaire guy, very heterodox mm-hmm. thinker. 
And he is very much influenced by Rene Girard's idea of mimesis, where people who are in competition, which is typically considered a healthy thing within uh, a capitalistic frame, he says people who are in competition get too fixated on the rival and they start kind of trying to outdo each other at their strengths and mimicking each other. If you want to be successful at something, you have to be the first mover. Like if you want to be truly successful and not waste your energy battling back and forth like McDonald's and Burger King, uh, this is why the, the next Mark Zuckerberg isn't going to be making a, a social website, why the next Steve Jobs isn't going to be making an iPhone. You can go into something to compete with someone, but if you want something new that's going to be successful, it's got to be truly new. And I think that most new things are going to be cross-disciplinarian. It's mm. someone who sees the intersection of two things that no one has articulated before. And I know Tim Ferriss had said that, you know, think about what you've consistently wished existed, what frustrates you by its absence. If it frustrates you continually, it's frustrating other people too. Mm -hmm. And something that had always frustrated me was this absurd low resolution dichotomy between the martial community and the psychedelic community. Mm -hmm. uh, which I thought were two of the bravest subcultures in our society. I think the, the frontier of consciousness, kind of like the ultimate frontier. And then obviously the revitalizing experience of divinity, the creative ideas, the empathy it fosters, the self-knowledge, anything that goes along actualization, that rests on the first premises of self-defense, of being able to secure food, shelter, clothing. But the psychedelic community was so caught up in like this pacifism thing that was kind mm -hmm. of a residue from the Vietnam War where violence was purely the purview of transgressors. And it was somehow like virtuous to be completely toothless and just be steamrolled over by evil. That was really, it irked me. It stuck in my craw. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Jack Donovan obviously wrote Violence is Golden, which is probably as perfect an articulation, that essay, as, uh, you know, the, the fact that violence is the gold standard that backs the order of all of our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, every time, you know, you, you don't violate a parking law, it's because you'll get a ticket and backing that ticket, you know, is police officers with guns and backing them as the National Guard and so on and so forth. Every time you enact a new law or restriction, uh, every time, you know, the soccer moms say, oh, you know, you can't leave your trash can out past this time on a certain day, that law gets passed. What they're really saying is it's worth using the state's monopoly on violence mm -hmm. to make sure that your trash can doesn't stay out past 4 p.m. Mm -hmm. But you can't be a good man as a harmless man. Mm -hmm. You know, strength is the prerequisite ability. It's the enabling virtue that enables all the others. Because if you just have rosy intentions, when the wolves come, those intentions are going to get raped ass to mouth on the front lawn while the neighbors watch. Mm -hmm. Like you're just, it doesn't matter what you intend if you can't back it up. Uh, and there is real evil out there. You know, there's people suffocating in shipping containers right now. You mm -hmm. know, there's, there's, there's people hacking off genitalia and crucifying children in Africa. You know, the whole argument, oh, moral relativism, everything's evil. I don't, I don't have 
time for that. I, I could go, you know, deep into just, you know, spend a little bit of time on the internet. And if you walk away and say, that's all fine, you know, you're a broken organism. Right. Everyone knows that it exists. They just kind of take this rhetorical stance that immediately collapses when you're truly confronted with real malevolence. Mm-hmm. I was uh, a medic on an ambulance for some years, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you see some things, uh, a lot yeah. of some pedophilia cases and stuff like that. And it's just, you know, evil's a real thing. Yeah. And it can be frustrating sometimes because you feel like there's so much darkness, right? But, you know, once there were no stars, it was just darkness. So mm-hmm. if you ask me, the light's winning. I think I, think I lifted that from True Detective. <laughs> Got that. Uh, I think if you look around and you say, hey, where, where are the teeth of the light? I think that's what we're called to be. Yeah. We're called to be the teeth of the light. Odonphos, that'd be uh, the phrase for that. Because the appeal of darkness is that its lips are always curled back and its fangs are revealed. They're on permanent display. Mm-hmm. And it, the people who really rush to embrace darkness, they're never Darth Maul, right? The actually evil people, they aren't, cool, competent guys, they're usually people who have completely failed in whatever situation they're in. And then because they have no bargaining power in the system that they're in, they say, okay, well, I'm a, I'm a resort to violence. Like if you look at school shooters, if you look at the, the kind of guys who are driven to ISIS, these characters, they're, they're all more of a, a kind of whiny, bitch-ass Kylo Ren character than they are... Uh, <laughs> A Darth Maul, you know, mm-hmm. evil isn't sure. competent. If you want to, you know, dudes who are competent and successful and whatnot, they're flourishing within the system. They're not, you know, lashing out. They typically have a far more healthy kind of balance. And uh, those competent guys, you know, I think we can step up and and try to fulfill our role as the teeth of the light, which is more reserved than the darkness. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have the same seductive uh, siren call of hey, you got to flex your power, but we're not concerned with flexing our power. Uh, if, if, you're, if you feel that call, to, you'd be more interesting in preserving life mm-hmm. and trying to, trying to accentuate the glory and assuage the pain that awaits us in this narrow slice of time between the birth canal and the awning grave. Oh, which yeah. I, I lifted that from you know, Terrence McKenna, but a lot, a lot of my best kind of things are really me just, I'm just remixing other smarter people's stuff. I'm kind of curating other people's ideas. Oh, well, you know, I, th- I think even Shakespeare said there's nothing new under the sun. So you're in good company. Yeah. You, you, you touched on so many things that I want to, that I just want to jump in there. I'm having, I'm having trouble deciding, uh, deciding which one. Since you, since you summoned the name of Kylo Ren into the discussion, I'm going to take a Star Wars tangent because I think it speaks actually, and, and also Darth Maul, I think it speaks to something very powerful that you, that you just brought up. So I never watched this, the animated, the CGI animated Star Wars series. Um, oh God, me neither. Yeah, but I did hear that it was, I don't forget what it was called, but I did hear it was actually really, really good. Not the movie, not the, not the sequel trilogy, the ones that just came out that were, that were trash, but the, but the, it was like a multiple, multiple season long thing. And in that long, that multiple seasons, two or three seasons, I could be making that up. There's a whole thing that goes on between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Maul. They have like a little rivalry and they have many different battles throughout the course of, uh, throughout the course of their engagement in, in the Phantom Menace movie where, uh, where Darth Maul kills Qui-Gon Jinn, that's, that's what kicks it off. And then they go from there. 
Their final battle, the final lightsaber duel between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Maul is an incredibly powerful piece of, of, I guess I'll call it filmmaking, of artistry, because it describes exactly what you're talking about. You have Darth Maul, who's very aggressive and very angry and and furious and, and almost vengeful in his way. And then he confronts Obi-Wan Kenobi, who is very calm and very stoic and very disciplined. And the way, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but the way that lightsaber battle plays out is absolutely beautiful. And it's a level of artistry that I don't think I had ever seen in Star Wars before to articulate these two different approaches to life, you know, where you have you have the sort of um, disciplined kind of evil, where you have a disciplined good, both very masters at what they're doing. And when you bring them together, how does that play out? And so as you talk about that, as you talk about what it requires to be on the side of the light, I think you said the phrase is odamphos, the teeth of the light. I'd never, yeah. heard, I'd never heard that before. And that's, that's really, where is that from, by the way? From me and my friend. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you just, you're not, you're not gonna, you're not gonna find that on the internet. That's a, that's an original. So that's awesome. You heard it first here. That's awesome. That's the, the same friend that when you were an infant, you were in the, in the, in the sink with? Yeah. Yeah. We, we were, uh, medics on the ambulance together. Uh, we've been, we were homeless for a few months, uh, in San Diego, uh, about a decade back together. Been through a lot of shit, a lot of hard stuff together. You know, that's something I don't want to derail your Star Wars. No, no, it's, it's the, please derail it because I'm actually more interested in hearing about your this 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 brotherhood that you have going with this friend of yours. Okay, yeah, because I, I don't even necessarily, like I was saying, I, I, I doubt that evil really exists in a Darth Maul way. Hmm. And if it does, I don't know, maybe that'd be cool. <laughs> but right. uh, typically I, I, I encounter it more in a kind of simpering uh, Kylo Ren way. Hmm. But I, I, God, those movies were terrible. They were. The, the 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 three new ones were some of the grossest propaganda I'd ever seen. Yeah, it's pretty what bad. A, what a betrayal yeah. of the a childhood mythos. But absolutely um, total destruction of it. I think a big problem in the world today. Uh, we kind of touched on atomization, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't really know what the word friend means. <laughs> yeah, especially men. What they have. Is well, yeah. Men, uh, they what do they say? Uh, women bond with each other by complimenting each other, but they don't mean it. Mm-hmm. And men bond by insulting each other, but they don't mean it either. So true. Unless I'm picking on you, I don't like you. <laughs> exactly. If if someone uh, if you're not comfortable uh, insulting someone, then you're not really friends with them. You have to keep it on a, a kind of duplicitous level uh which you know that's something that we lose in in this culture of political correctness which mm-hmm. i would say if you ever have to put an adjective in front of the word correct then it's not correct <laughs> yep same you with, know what i mean same with justice uh, whenever you put social justice is not justice justice is justice yeah i think that what most people have is friends of proximity and I have them too. I have them too. When you, when you start work at a, a place or you move into a neighborhood, anytime you're put into any environment, you know, if, if you go on a business trip with some people together or you're, you're put on a, a team of guys, there's going to be people that you relate to more in that group than others. And you will, by nature of the exclusionary structure of the group, you know, gravitate towards those people. And, you know, you're going to have more fun together. You're going to have more kind of shared references together. You're going to hang out together. You're going to enjoy each other's company. But as soon as, you know, the situation dissolves, that relationship dissolves because that person was really just the most tolerable person that you were exposed to. Mm -hmm. And that's about as deep as most 
friendships seem to to kind of go in the modern world. What really brings people together, and you'll see this on sports teams, you'll see this uh, in CrossFit gyms. Why is why is CrossFit such a, a successful cult? Why do why do people call it a cult? Why does it get like that? You will a hundred percent see this in MMA gyms and jujitsu gyms. It's the entire alchemy behind the philosophy of the training that goes into special operations teams, uh, be it BUDS or uh, Special Forces Assessment and Selection for, for the Green Berets. Uh, it's this idea that shared suffering bonds people together. So I'm extremely fortunate. You know, probably the most valuable thing I have in my life, you know, is a friendship that dates back before English, but someone who was raised in the same region at the same time. So we have the same cultural references, but then someone who went through all the kind of hardships I went with. Uh, and that's now someone who, you know, Thoreau said that a friend is someone who holds you to a higher standard than you hold yourself. Mm, love it. And I think that that's such an important idea and that most people have this idea of affirmative friendship. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I want the friend who says, you're a fat piece of shit. Go run. Like, no, don't, don't, don't rationalize, you know, that you can have that Frappuccino or, you know, that you're fucking good to go play, you know, PS5 right now. Like, you know, learn another language. Like, Hey, you know, what's happening with crypto right now? You know, okay. You you got, you got one instrument, you know, learn another. What's going on. What about that pile of books that's unread? Hey, that girl, that girl is toxic. Mm-hmm. You know, what, why are you putting your attention into this or, or that or the other? I want someone who challenges me. And the Greeks actually really understood this mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. And this kind of plays into what I was talking about, uh, Peter Thiel's idea of uh, competition not necessarily always being a good thing. It's very kind of interesting thing. But the Greeks had the system of ostracizing people where every year they uh, would, you would vote on who you wanted to banish from the city and that person would be banished from one year mm-hmm. and typically they would banish the people who were the best at their trade to the extent that it stymied competition of other people mm-hmm. so if stanley kubrick was there or Jimi hendrix were there they'd be like you know what stanley kubrick you're the best filmmaker but you're bad for filmmaking right <laughs> because no one can compete with you so you're going to get banished for a year and, and it wasn't like a a lot of some of the Greeks that we remember the most were banished. It's almost kind of like an honorable punishment. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was Mark Twain who said, uh, turning down an award is the same thing as accepting it, but with greater publicity <laughs> because you've been granted the award still, you know, so. Yeah, Marlon Brando did that in the Oscars in the 70s, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, so it's kind of like that, you know, where Jimi Hendrix, you know what, your guitar playing just makes Eric Clapton and... Everybody else kind of look weak. So we want them to compete. We want them to have the motivation to try to be the best. And they're, you know, dissuaded by your presence. So mm. you can go over to Thebes or to Athens or, you know, somewhere else. You know, then you can come back in a year once everybody's leveled up a little bit and they feel like they have a chance to, to actually get a shot at being the top. Mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger. And this is, this is one of my, my biggest advices for, for young men. Arnold Schwarzenegger said that champions come in pairs Mm. that for him uh 
God, I'm forgetting his buddy's name. Franco Colombo. Yes, yes, exactly. But, but the uh, the Mandela effect. Apparently, his name is Franco Colombo. Okay. Yeah. Wow. No, I I remembered Bo. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's actually a thing. Yeah. You can look at there is no Franco Colombo. He never existed. It's Franco Colombo now. Interesting. Yeah. We Interesting. Can, we can unpack that later. Reality is shifting under our feet. It's a, <laughs> it's a maze that navigates as you. It navigates back as you try to move through it. That's right. Yeah. Uh, time is moving in both directions at this point. Yeah. So that idea of having someone who you're in this constructive competition and constantly with to see who can be the best where no one person is, is dominating the top, you know, you could, you're going back and forth. That's going to eke so much more out of you having someone who holds you accountable, uh, Mm -hmm. and having each other shore up each other's weaknesses. Um, it's just an, the the most invaluable thing you could have in life is you know that that true friend. I mean, that's up there with like you know loving parents and like your relatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, which again, you know, that's something that I think that modernity thinks it's a little bit too cool for. Mm-hmm. Well, you make me think of um, this book by Michel de Montan, the French the French writer. He wrote an essay called "On Friendship," and I think you might enjoy it. Um, and he sort of the way that he breaks it down is. The, the the real true between two men who have a true friendship is a is a deeper love um and we only have one word in english for love so it's not even the correct the correct word a deeper love than even with the love that a man can feel for a woman that when two male friends have that level of friendship and unfortunately our language is saturated with you know homoeroticism when it comes to two men being friends and so it's really a shame that those implications are there of course he was writing from a time when that wasn't the case as is also the story of uh, Achilles and Patroclus, the way that that's portrayed as this homoerotic kind of thing. Like, no, those are two brothers who love each other. Doesn't doesn't quite come close. Um, but you're you're talking about something like that when when you have that level of friendship, it's someone to lean off, lean on, and push off of at the same time. And the the, the men do that for each other. Uh, I don't know that we have that same that same concept of male friendship today, but we're rediscovering it. I think men are rediscovering it all the time. Yeah, it's it's pretty rare. Um, I mean, you hear you hear that all the time with uh, you know war veterans, right? Mm-hmm. You, you hear them pretty much articulate exactly what what you just said. Uh, the as far as only having one word for love, this is this is something that uh, is you know a recurring frustration of mine is our yeah. imp- our impoverishment of a lexicon for our own internal states. Mm-hmm. the fact that we only have one word for love like love the dog love ice cream love your mom <laughs> mm-hmm. uh love your sexual partner love your best friend mm-hmm. uh completely different things people talk about uh you know um however many words the eskimos have for snow mm-hmm. which i've also heard we over exaggerate that you know that that was kind of like a a thing that snopes had an issue with of course you know, you need you need a Snopes for Snopes now because Snopes right. is a hundred percent ideologically possessed now. Absolutely, it's so um, sad. It's, it's sad and scary. But uh, I I wonder wonder about Wikipedia. Honestly, that's going to be a, I'm sure it already is a huge battlefield. But I wonder at what point that's just going to become completely irrelevant as a as a source. Well, I can't I, I can't imagine it will remain relevant that much longer. Given you know how schizoid everything is right now, I think Fox Day is actually starting a competing Wikipedia. I want to call it—I don't know—that's Infogalactic, but I think he is working on that project, sort of a 
maybe it's not necessarily crowdsourced in the same way. I, I, I think of Wikipedia as probably largely useless except for just a surface understanding of something and you have to if you really want to pursue it further from there it's up to you but i don't think reading wikipedia is as authoritative as reading like an encyclopedia britannica of, of years past we're like okay that's a pretty balanced view it's like depending on the subject wikipedia is hugely politically slanted to the left as is everything online yeah you, you gotta have a an asterisk next to it all and understand what kind of social algorithm you need to detangle the agendas of whoever is potentially writing it but mm -hmm. i have found it immensely useful just in terms of the way the articles are all hyperlinked together on there mm -hmm. i mean you can go in there and take a college course in the afternoon you know and, and walk away conversant with a level of depth on the subject uh that just you know most people know nothing about and you can i mean it's yeah. i've I've read a lot of it. I've read a lot of it. You just kind of have to take everything with a grain of salt. I do a poetry podcast as well as these, these interviews. I also read a poem and interpret a poem every week, and it's hugely useful for learning about the lives of poets. But I find that when I use it, I'm always kind of wondering what's left out, what's been emphasized, what's been, what's been edited. I don't think that, I don't think most people are going after, after, you know, an obscure American poet of the 1940s in quite the same way as some other subjects. But there is that sort of question in my mind that exists that I don't think would have existed before. I think it was Will Durant said that most history is guessing and the rest is prejudice. <laughs> oh yeah, that's his book was recommended. What's the whim, what's the book that it's like a 200 page book, Lessons of History or something like that. The Lessons of History, 100%. That's one of uh, the books I would most recommend to people. Uh, that and The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Mm. I mean, like if you're just trying to, you know, get in on the ground level, like those, that's that's the starting point. Mm -hmm. When did you first discover, I know that stoicism is having a bit of a moment right now or has been, when did you first discover either Will Durant or Marcus Aurelius and what was their, what was their effect when you read them? Aurelius was 2010 mm -hmm. when I came across that. And I, I still have the, that copy of the book sitting on my desk right now. And, uh, I've read that. I mean, you know, it got me through homelessness. It got me through digging cars out the snow. Uh, it got me through ups and downs of, of everything that I've gone through, you know, various uh, military selection pipelines. It's some of it was an articulation of thoughts that I'd had my whole life, but never had been able to coherently assemble. Mm -hmm. And then other aspects of it just were like a diamond shot between my eyes. <laughs> like Marlon Brando says in uh, Apocalypse Now. Mm -hmm. uh, just the immediate use of this mental software was so apparent when I came across it. I said, hey, this, this is what I need to run. Like this is being installed into my operating system mm. right now. I'm, I want this patch. And uh, yeah, I mean, here I am. Uh, a decade later telling people that it's probably the number one most important thing you could read. And I'm someone who's probably 80% of the mass of what I own is books. Mm. So that's, I don't know if you care about my opinion on books. Uh, maybe, maybe you shouldn't, but I care a lot about books and that's the one that I tell people to read first. So oh, I, take that for what it's worth. Well, I care very much about your opinion on books because you're, because you're well for that for that reason and also because one of your one of your recent posts was about the green light in the Great Gatsby, 
And you had this comment that there are a few literary symbols that can hold a candle to it. And A, I agree, there's something very powerful about that symbol, especially for how briefly it appears. But also it got me thinking about all these different symbols in literature and sent me on this great journey of looking through all my books like, oh, what are some symbols in this book? So I care very much about your opinion about books and would love to talk more about books with you if you've got some others to recommend. Yeah, The Great Gatsby. I mean, Fitzgerald's prose is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I think the book is, honestly, it's it's kind of vapid. But the the green light really just appealed to me as a symbol of that that kind of siren and i have this fixation with um with excellence there's something about you know if you think about the maybe the scene in the last samurai if anyone's seen it uh where tom cruise is in the rain and he's he's practicing with the wooden sword against this other guy and the guy just is destroying him over and over and over again and he keeps getting knocked down and he just keeps standing back up and the guy's got this expression on his face like what the fuck are you? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, David Goggins talks about the same thing. Uh, you know, round 14 and Rocky, right? Now, the first Rocky, I, I don't want to piss that many people off, but I hated it. <laughs> like the writing and the characters. Adrian, you'll like my room. You know, I just, <laughs> I just, I don't like the movie, but the ending sequence nails something about human nature and masculinity in particularly that's absolutely transcendent like you can feel it crawl across your skin and Mm -hmm. the hair stand up on the back of your neck just that like i will not be like just standing back up and even though apollo creed wins it's not apollo creed is it yeah yeah. i'm misremembering yeah yeah Yeah, it is it is apollo creed yeah i was i was thinking of clubber lang and and the other one Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah even though apollo creed wins the fight he loses his soul when he sees rocky stand back up after he was knocked down mm-hmm. you know he, he he realizes this guy has has beat my will mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and uh that kind of unreasonable fixation on excellence just electrifies me mm. i'm i'm fascinated with it i'm obsessed with it uh i fuck up all the time you know, uh, but it, it's okay if, if, if you slip so long as you don't fall, you know, if you're climbing up a rope, you know, you, you slide, everyone slides down, right? I, I've fucked up a million times and you just catch yourself and continue onward with imperfect action. And you know, people are always so concerned about like, oh, the situation is not right. This, that, that's resistance. Fuck all that. Mm-hmm. Like imperfect action is the key. And, uh, so while I may not be, you know, a perfect embodiment of this, it's definitely something that I aspire to that you, there's a, a switch you can turn on this obsessing obsession switch. And, uh, I recommend that everyone flip it on. You know, I think it can propel you to successes not achievable by more reasonable men, not dreamt of in more sane hours. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, history is is written by the unreasonable man. What is reasonable? The word, the root of the word reasonable is reason. Oh, there's all these reasons why I can't do this, or why I shouldn't do this, or why I'm not going to do this. You have to be unreasonable, meaning you have to unreason yourself. You have to lose the reasons not to do the thing, whatever they may be, and you just do the thing, and you continue doing it until you until you master it, or until you become bored of it, or it becomes not interesting anymore, and you move on to the next thing but you must be unreasonable to make meaningful progress in life because life will not hesitate to provide 
you or any of us with reasons not to do the thing. Life will provide ample reasons for us to sit on the couch and watch TV or play PlayStation or, or doom scroll on Twitter or whatever. And it's so, it's so essential and so fundamentally masculine to break out of that cage of reasons that imprisons really all of us in a way. And to say, I'm going to be unreasonable and do the thing that might step on someone's toes, that might piss someone off, that might make someone look at me funny. I'm going to do it anyway. That's where mastery is. That's the road that you fear to tread, right? That's the dark entry to the forest. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, look at Michael Jordan, you know, the guy, mm-hmm. the guy's so competitive. He loses a pool game. He locks himself in his room for three days and then comes out like after he's practiced pool for, you know, 72 hours to destroy someone at pool. You know, like there's the, the meme going around where he's like, and I took that personally. Wow. You know, Michael Jordan or, uh, you know, look at uh, Hicks and Gracie doing his breathing exercises under the, the snow waterfall in Japan before he goes into the the ring or Alex Honnold, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and free solo, like mm. those kind of guys, that's an embodiment of people transcending their limitations and, and it's highest possible incarnation. I get high off of that. Mm-hmm. I get high off of human excellence mm. and excellence. You can almost kind of visualizing it as flowing between people. It's contagious. Mm-hmm. Fear is contagious, but excellence is contagious. If a few people come into contact with one great person, you know, they, they, can, they can spread it as almost like this reverse plague. Uh, and how many other people can be turned on just because, you know, they've all caught this one flame and none of it diminishes, you know, the fire mm-hmm. of, of the original source, you know, mm-hmm. how many people can be set alight by, by one match? Well, this, this gets me thinking about, we're talking a lot about the classics and I'm reading this book called um, How Not to Lose Your Mind, which is about a rediscovery of classic music and classic literature and classic film as well, exp- expanding the Western canon to include uh, films. And it gets me thinking about the return to a- appreciation. Of course, the aesthetic of the Renaissance of Men is very classic in its approach with Greek sculpture and all that. But I think we also, we grow up with these fantastic works of art, whether it be um, the Sistine Chapel ceiling or Michelangelo's David or, you know, name your favorite symphony. I happen to like some of the paintings of uh, Botticelli. But to look at these things very closely and to realize just the amount of the word that would be used today is probably autistic, but autistic focus on excellence to make these things that we now take for granted. We have to strip away that perception and really look at the thing really look at the at Michelangelo's David, even online, look at there are dozens of pictures of all angles, appreciate just how excellent that is and what it must have taken, not just in terms of Michelangelo's skill and ability and talent and gift from God and whatever you want to call it, but also just the effort, just also the effort to master, to master marble to that degree. And we just look at, we look at that photo all the time, like, oh, that's Michelangelo's David and throw it away. But I think we we need to reconnect with this idea of there are works of such profound beauty and profound mastery and profound excellence all around us all the time. And that itself is, is inspiring. Yes. <laughs> cool. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> I was, yeah, I, mean, I, I pretty much uh, agree with, with everything you just said. You know, I'm sure there's some diagnosticians uh, out there who who might object to the the use of the word autism right of but i i definitely have thought before that there there is something autistic ish 
about excellence. Like if you mm-hmm. think about, hey, just making a shelter out of trees and leaves and things, you know, if it, if it works, it works, right? Mm-hmm. But then some people come along and then, you know, if you look at, you know, how we do construction nowadays, it's gridded out. It's scientific. It's mm-hmm. a standardized perfectionist structure that allows maximum efficiency and maximum mm-hmm. stability and everything. And it requires an attention to detail that way surpasses what's necessary to get a standing structure. Mm-hmm. But you get a structure that, you know, you, using these principles, you know, you can build the Empire State Building or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can kind of see the same level of attention to detail going back, you know, to, to Roman uh, aqueducts and stuff as well. Or, you know, look at Alex Honnold and Free wow. Solo. That's you so know, incredible. like that's a perfect example. The scene where he's rehearsing in his mind what are essentially the chess moves mm-hmm. that he has to perform on the wall the next day and how he's setting that up. I mean, it, it's exactly like jujitsu how he's thinking, how he's got to move this way just to enable himself to kind of move back that way. And he's describing like a 36-step series of moves that he knows exactly where on the wall he's going to have to perform those Mm -hmm. while he's sitting in his van. Mm -hmm. And it was necessary for him to have that memorized for the entire ascent. Which, by the way, this week, I don't know if you saw, the the first woman completed a free climb of El Cap. Oh, wow. So the dam is kind of burst in a way. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating thing about human potential is that we'll say something's impossible like forever. And mm-hmm. then as soon as one person does it, you just wait like two years and another person will do it. Strength records, speed records. It's a really interesting phenomenon. kind of lets you know about our own self-limiting beliefs. Hi, everyone. This is just a brief interruption. We're at the halfway point, and I hope you're all enjoying the conversation. This is just a quick reminder to follow me on social media. You can find me on Instagram at Renofmen. That's R-E-N-O-F-M-E-N, like Renaissance of Men, but shorter, Ren of Men. You can also find me on Twitter at Will underscore Ren of Men. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you're tuning in, now's a great time to subscribe because my next guest coming up is a Kung Fu master and mystic named Alpha Starseed. Really excited to talk to him. And that's just one of several deep conversations yet to come. And if you have a minute, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Just click the five-star icon on the app on your phone or desktop. And if you have a chance, give us a review. A lot more men need to hear this content and let's see if we can get it out to them. That's all for now. Let's get back to the second half of the conversation with The Howling Void. Well, my friend, um, my friend Tim, he and I talk all day and he, I remember he first recommended the movie Free Solo to me and, and he described it as a major leap forward in, in human evolution. It's like, oh, wow, because there's more going on in this movie than I realized, just that accomplishment of the impossible thing and, and the dam kind of bursting and the dam breaking that makes it now possible for people to do things like climbing El Cap, Free Solo, and who knows what else, what the, what the cascading effects will that, will that'll be. And, the, and that Alex Honnold did it like way faster. I don't remember how long it took him way faster than he even expected, like 75% of the time. Not only did he just, not only did he scale the thing, it's like he just blew through his own expectations for himself. It's absolutely mind blowing. And, and just to think about what humans can do when they truly fixate on, on accomplishing that is remarkable. I do kind of want to touch on something, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, where, you know, you were talking about this, you know, how not to lose your mind and, and, and grounding in, in the classics and the Renaissance, you know, as this reference point. And I think 
you know, what the Renaissance was, was largely, you know, the dark ages had reached this point where, you know, the operating systems they were running weren't working, they were mm-hmm. crashing. Mm-hmm. So they said, Hey, we're, we're going to cast back for a previous model that maybe we can draw some lessons from mm-hmm. and install in our civilization and, you know, get a reflowering. And that's what they did. They cast back to ancient Greece, to ancient Rome, and uh, it seemed to work. You know, it was a bloody turmoil, a lot of turmoil in that period of history, but it also was a period of a lot of discovery and revitalization and chaos. I think we're at a point now, you know, where you're, you're reading this book, hey, how, let's cast back to that, right? Mm-hmm. I think we're at a point now where we really have to cast back, but mm-hmm. probably further back than the Renaissance. Man. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at how industrial society has got us all living and what we were t- kind of talking about earlier, where you know you, you, you spend your life working to en- enrich other people just to be able to afford your weekend off where you can then spend money to give back to those people who you already worked to enrich. And you spend that money on distractions just to pass the time until you go back to work. Mm-hmm. And then that like work distraction cycle consists of your whole life until you're old enough to need a hip replacement and hearing aids. And they say, okay, now you can go like drive an RV around the Southwest till you die or something. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of people are pretty disenfranchised with that structure. I mean, you kind of saw like the first kind of entrepreneurial and benign rejection of that kind of with Tim Ferriss's, you know, four hour work week mm-hmm. kind of articulating that, you know, you had the critiques of, of people kind of coming at the direction we were going in from before where, you know, you have Thoreau talking about it, you know, the train gets you everywhere faster, but is it, is there anywhere more worth getting to? And then, you know, on a, on a more sinister side, right. You obviously have Krasinski, you know, the Unabomber, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or what's articulated in, in fight club mm-hmm. pretty well, which is probably, I would think the zeitgeist film of our generation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, easily. And the matrix too. Well, yeah, I mean, it's those two films definitely supply the, uh, the vocabulary for, uh, a lot of the cultural, uh, the counterculture that's going on Mm -hmm. right now. They came out the same year or something too, which is crazy. They, they did office space came out that year. Mm -hmm. The matrix came out that year. Fight club came out that year. American beauty came out that year. Wow. All three of these movies were about like a guy disgusted with being an office drone and then his life kind of falling apart in a various, you know, kind of crescendoing way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But all those movies could be kind of outlined with the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think we really got to examine what promotes human flourishing. Yeah. You know, we, we were so caught up with this, this fetish on the cyberpunk aesthetic in terms of our our science fiction's imagination. Blade Runner was not meant to be the goal. It was not an aspirational film. No. It was meant to be like, holy shit, change your path. Yeah. But if you look, if you look at how that cyberpunk aesthetic is portrayed nowadays, I don't know if you saw the Netflix show uh, Altered Carbon. You know, I'm not gonna recommend that anyone watch it, but no. it has this very glamorized depiction of you know, this hyper corporate hundred percent. I mean, it's this dark, terrible world where this completely meaningless and, you know, everything's fucked by, you know, corrupt institutions of power and everyone's so mind fucked by programming. And because 
you know, everything's relative with your biology and technology, you know, it's essentially meaningless. It's just a bunch of different transient intelligences that kind of masturbate their way through life. Mm -hmm. I think that the creative minds of science fiction are kind of just, they've lost the message and uh, they're just kind of glamorizing what we seem to be on a railroad track towards right. rather than trying to imagine some kind of alternative thing where we're more in sync with nature, where we, we have more localization, where we're less all. I mean, part of the reason that people are so panicky about, you know, the presidential election is the federal government is so powerful. Mm -hmm. You're trying to, you know, govern, th you know, 300, 400 million people who have completely different lifestyles in completely different places under you know, the suzerainty of, of one massive bureaucracy that can't account for all the individual contexts there. Which is not, it was not supposed to do originally. The, the centralized federal government wasn't supposed to do that for that exact reason. Not at all. Not yeah. at all. Yeah. So, I mean, and if you look at, uh, you know, I've, I've been to Singapore and uh, it's a really interesting place, but, mm. you know, they, they, they're doing a great job with greening their cities. Every mm. building, every interstate overpass. I mean, people, it's worthwhile. Anyone listening should Google the Changi International Airport yeah, and see what the in, the inside of the, the Singapore airport looks like. Mm -hmm. Everything in Singapore is like that. Greenery is woven through everything. And that's mm -hmm. just kind of a first step towards being able to revive a kind of, I'd like to call it like paleo-futurism, mm -hmm. you know, where you can, what, what's fulfilling is our relationships with people. And I think that more and more, you know, the processed food, the toxic stuff, the corn syrup, the food supply chains, which are being revealed now to be, you know, not necessarily as reliable as we might have thought, mm -hmm. especially given the trucker strike and COVID and everything. I see, I see a lot of millennials wanting mountain compounds where they have their land and their, you know, their animals and their farm and, you know, some like minds. I, I see a massive kind of wanting to exodus from the cities, exodus from because what, what's the what's the lore of cities? Right. Largely, the lore of cities is a flooded sexual marketplace. You have a bunch of it, mm. potential interchangeable sex partners. I mean, they are these neuron centers of humanity, and they are these kind of economic centers. But I think if you really ask young people, like, "Hey, why are you really moving to the city?" Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the times it's it's the sexual marketplace, and people, you know, they want to spend four grand on, you know, this this chic kind of apartment a month. To, to signal some kind of status. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, living in that concrete jungle, uh, while it can afford you some economic advantages initially, I think it's pretty anti-human in the oh, long run. Very much. And uh, I think people are beginning to kind of opt out of that. Uh, at least a, a, lot of the, a lot of the guys, a lot of the guys that I know, a lot of the guys who seem to be uh, howling void adjacent mm -hmm. in the, whatever you want to call this space. I, I used to think of cities as there is that sexual marketplace component, but there was also, there used to be a, a free flowing creative energy, interdisciplinary creative energy from food into the arts, into culture. And that used to have a really powerful kind of draw. And that's the, the classic draw of a place like New York City. But as all these different areas of, of human expression have been increasingly corrupted by the, by the Marxist cultural wave that's twisting everything into agendas and, and power narratives and power dynamics. It drains all these different artistic outlets of their vitality. That drains them of their relevance and, and their 
soul nourishing kind of characteristics, if you will. And so for me, that has so much less appeal to me now. Like I don't need to go be preached at when I sit down for my meal about Black Lives Matter, and I don't want to go see this musical and have and be preached at about something else, or or go to this other kind of concert and be preached at. Like, no, I'm not interested anymore in your agendas. I will go back to nature and I'll and I will enjoy. I will enjoy what it is being away from the agenda, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, it's it's become, you know, the Athenian agora is no more. You know, the kind of public space. In fact, it's completely inverted. It's, <laughs> there aren't free speech circles now. There's safe space, uh, safe spaces now. So, That's right. Yeah, I went to New York City for the, the first time this year. I was there for New Year's. Uh, no, I did not uh, go to Times Square for the ball or anything. Okay. Silly like that. Yeah. And it was, it was really cool. It was inspiring. How narrative the architecture was. Mm-hmm was breathtaking. There was a level of ambition and expression of the human spirit and and storytelling because there was so much mythology incorporated into the architecture mm-hmm. from that art deco period where you could really see that that people were believing in something more and trying to achieve something more before we transitioned to this bauhaus corrugated metal stuccoed front strip mall bullshit, mm-hmm. you know, where a lack of an aesthetic is still an aesthetic and ugliness is killing us. You know, the return of investment on beauty doesn't just draw tourists to a place, but it affects the quality of people's lives, especially it affects what they're willing to do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a space determines what happens in that space. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the shape of the aqueduct determines where the water flows. The cities determine how we move through them. And how we interact with that architecture. What is what is the message being communicated to you? The McLuhanistic message being communicated to you by the corrugated metal, you know, line of nail salons and dollar stores, you know, versus walking through New York City mm-hmm. and the the kind of aspirational expressions in that architecture. But like you said, those centers of expression and whatnot, the, those buildings are, are anachronistic now. You know, mm-hmm. the cities are. You know, they're, they're in the grips of ideological possession mm-hmm. and nature is certainly medicinal in, in so many ways. Our artifice, so much of the, the things that we kind of thought we were improving on. I mean, we're beginning to realize now like, oh, there's bad effects to this and that and everything. Mm-hmm. Like we should have just kind of kept at it like we were uh, with nature, like, you know, with our, with our shoes and how much dysfunction the shoes cause in our mm-hmm. feet and our legs mm-hmm. and our hips and our back and our neck with our lifestyles of sitting with the things that we eat, you know, fluorescent lights, mm-hmm. you know, how much antibiotics can fuck with your, your gut fauna or pasteurized milk versus raw milk. There's so much where you're just realizing like, hey, you know, the way we were doing it, you know, for 200,000 years, that's was the way that works. And these artificial kind of things that we made up on a whimsy, uh, which were commodities to extract value from us, they're actually destroying us. And this kind of gets back to what I was saying about, you know, that paleo-futurism where you really got to return to first premise with what makes people flourish, which isn't to be confused with being a Luddite, right? Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you just opt out of technology, you're going to be steamrolled by Leviathan. Like, I'm mm-hmm. glad that there are heart transplants. I've had multiple joint reconstructive surgeries. Mm-hmm. I've had um, a wizard shoot lasers into my eyes. Uh, so that I could see better. And we call that LASIK. I love technology, but 
you really got to stop and say, hey, how are we going to apply this where you put people first and, and not just this, this profit first system? Because it's having consequences that are getting to the point of being an existential threat. Oh, for sure. And this is this actually takes you back. You touched on you know some of the things that you've been through, and I want to bring it back from sort of the conceptual back to back to the man that I'm speaking to. And you know, you posted a bunch of questions um, from your on your Instagram for your for your followers to ask. And one that really um, one that really stood out for me is by uh, Tyler Ham. I think is his username. It says, "How do you apply the things you write about into your daily life?" And it sounds like you've been on a pretty big journey. It sounds I heard reference of the military, and you have a psychedelic history as well, and homelessness, and working in a and working in a in an ambulance, and and joint reconstructive surgery, and wandering. I mean, you're you're painting this sort of this sort of picture, and now it seems you've assembled yourself at least philosophically into into having a viewpoint, into having a perspective, into having a telos. So all the things that we've been talking about, and the things that you write about on your Instagram, like how does it show up in your daily life for you? Like I said, man, I, I fail all the time. Mm. You know, I'm far from being a, a perfect uh, incarnation of the things that I espouse, but I, I do strive for them. I do try to follow, you know, what does scare me the most. Absolutely. Uh, you know, whether that be the cold shower in the morning mm. or, you know, trying out for, for this or that or a new entrepreneurial kind of thing, a lifestyle of, you know, fitness and and discipline and a lot of those things that kind of for people who are first starting out, they have a surface tension resistance to it because these things do hurt and they do hurt disproportionately when you first start Mm -hmm. before the grooves get greased, especially if you you just start working out like you're going to be it's going to hurt for a couple of days. You know, you have that delayed uh, onset muscle soreness. Uh, and people are like, oh, is this what it feels like when you work out forever? No, it it doesn't. Completely, your nervous system completely rewires. I mean, when you first subject yourself to it, it's traumatic for your body because your body's so maladapted to a human-centric lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've just been atrophying. But uh, eventually, these things—they're very engaging and challenging, but they feel very good, and it's not as much of a sacrifice, you know. But I just find that you know I don't you know, want the donut most of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't want how it makes me physically feel. I like how running makes me physically feel, you know, you, and it, it shifts that way. It wasn't always like that, but once, once you start getting glimpses of it, you begin to feel, and then you realize when you do these little things, when you listen to that, your, your inner bitch, when you cave, I'm not saying that I feel guilty about these things. Cause I'm not a, I'm not a moralizer. And, uh, I think, you know, for your average person, just following an 80-20 Pareto rule is going to get you infinitely better than where you are. Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, I mean, I, I physically don't like how I feel uh, if I compromise my discipline and I cave to weakness. Like a lot of the, the moto shit that uh, I'll post, I mean, that's my conversation with myself. Mm-hmm. I say, hey, you know, if this is, if this is useful for me, maybe someone else is having a moment too. And maybe that can help push them out of it as well. I'm not sitting on a throne with my, my fingers held up like the baby Jesus, you know, proclamating any kind of infallible truths. I'm in the trenches with everybody else, just trying to transcend my own limitations so that I can be of greater fitness to serve 
some kind of purpose beyond myself. Mm. And that sounds selfless, but really it's kind of selfish because that's what makes me feel the best. I feel fulfilled when I'm useful to other people. So it's that kind of paradox yeah, you know, that being selfless is kind of ultimately the most selfish thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that really answers the question. But. It does. It does. I mean, you you acknowledge that the things that you write about, as I think all the things that men who are in, I guess we'd say in the personal development space or men who are in the renaissance of men, as I like to say it, it's all aspirational. You can't hold any man or any person to the standards that they that they espouse. I don't, I don't know that it's possible. In fact, I just read the poem If by Rudyard Kipling as part of my poetry podcast. And if you read through that poem, which is very, very popular, and it's a beautiful poem, even Rudyard Kipling acknowledged himself that uh, I'm hardly worthy to, to live up to the, the ideals that I espouse, some, some very pithy way of phrasing it. But the poem itself is, is fundamentally aspirational because nobody can do all those things. And it's always a standard that we're pushing for. It's like a North Star. It's the green light across the, across the bay that's drawing us on. We'll never get the green light, but we keep reaching for it. A hundred percent. God, that's such a great poem. Oh, it, yeah. It's one of it's one of my favorites. Uh, yeah, I think I think it was Jack Donovan who who said that masculinity was a lodestar. That mm-hmm. absolute masculinity is a lodestar, and uh, you know we can only aspire to it. I know a woman who asked me, you know, who's the most masculine man that you know, and I, I couldn't answer the question because nobody embodies it perfectly. Everybody has their own strengths and their own weaknesses that need to be buttressed up. And I could list a very stereotypical cast of people that are heavy on their incarnation of typically masculine traits. You know, someone like Jocko Willink might mm-hmm. come to mind, right? But uh, you know, he's not perfect masculinity, and because no one is. Uh, Masculinity is a hypertrophic response to pressure. And by subjecting yourself to those pressures repeatedly, you know, repetition is how we grow, how we grow smarter, how we grow stronger, how we grow our skill sets. So, you know, if you find yourself fighting those same battles over and over and over again, that doesn't mean you're standing still. Mm-hmm. You know, like repetition is the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is how you grow. An ex-girlfriend of mine gave me a, a cooking analogy for that, where if you've ever had a lemon meringue pie, the meringue frosting on top, and uh, the way that you make that is you you know, put sugar and eggs and stuff in a, in a big bowl and you just, you stir and you stir and you stir and you stir. And it seems like for a long time that nothing is happening till finally after a, an ungodly amount of time, little peaks begin to form. And then suddenly peaks form into something larger and something larger. And then suddenly you have this meringue that you drop on your pie. And that it seems like an overnight success to the person who looks at it like, oh, wow, look, it's a lemon meringue pie. But for you, you're aware of the entire process of development and growth. And uh, I thought that was a great analogy in an unexpected kind of way. Absolutely. You know, uh, you know, all, all the greatest guitarists, they all kind of tell the same story, how they, uh, you know, for a period of like at least four years, locked themselves in a room and did nothing but play guitar for like 10 hours a day, you know, from, you know, more kind of poppy eyes, although he does have some blues chops, but, uh, you know, I'm not that enthused with, uh, John Mayer's music, but he is a great guitarist, but from him, you know, Tom Morello, Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, like they all tell this same story about just locking themselves in the room. And, you know, that's when they suck that guitar. People quit things when they suck at it. Let me use the jujitsu metaphor here because I think it's it's perfect. The black belt isn't the guy who never got choked out. Mm-hmm. He's the guy who got choked out the most. Mm-hmm. 
it's so important to fail more. You know, it's my number one advice, fail, fail more. You know, like Michael Jordan famously is the player to score the most three-point throws of anyone in the NBA. But do you know who missed the most three-point throws of anyone in the NBA? I'll let Michael you Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because he took the most shots. And then, you know, he's not remembered as the worst player for missing all those points. He's the best player for making all those points. The master is uh, just a beginner who didn't quit. So, you know, those guys locking themselves in the room to play guitar, they sucked for all those years. And then they came out and, oh, look, it's Jimmy Page, you know, doing what no one has ever done before in 1969, you know, so. That's definitely inspiring words, I think, for, for any man who's struggling and striving and aspiring to be better. Yeah, that's that, that process of transcending the limitations of the self, the, the transmutation of your lead into gold. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing that all gold comes from mud. The inverse is inconceivable, right? You don't have a, a block of gold ingot. You can't get dirt out of it. But if you have, you know, mud, you can strain it, get these little pieces of gold and they build up, right? And then you can filter it. And, you know, there's a lot of shit in there. There's a lot of garbage in there, but you can get these little little specks of gold and build them up and you know smelt them down and purify them and build this gleaming spire and in that way you know as as rough as we as our raw material can be all filth veils the secret of its pregnancy the greatness that can be extracted from it if you have the patience and the discipline and the consistency consistency is key to engage in that process to voluntarily subject yourself not to you know freedom for freedom's sake or hedonism voluntarily subject yourself to a discipline and then like Jocko says discipline equals freedom right you're gonna find that the strengths you develop from your sacrifice of adherence to that discipline that will enable your freedom, you know, your, your freedom to move through your body, your freedom to look as you appear, your freedom to be conversant on all these subjects, all these things that you might be embittered and jealous of other people for have before. If you just yielded to your immediate base animal desires, you know, when you wound up ignorant and fat and sad and pale, you know, just, you know, jerking off and playing video games all day. I think you summed it all up right there. And I'm, I'm so grateful that, that you agreed to come on for your first podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great to kind of be able to expound on uh, you know some of these ideas or throw in other things that might not necessarily fit in uh, with the poster or whatnot. And I know there is like an ambient you know curiosity of who is the howling void or whatever, but yeah, you know, that's it's not about me; it's about the ideas. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think I think you sum that up. And I think also behind the mask of of anonymity we still managed to get a good sense of, of who you are and what you're about, even though you obviously can't picture it in concrete detail. But I think the story surfaces through the ideas that you espouse and, and, and the bits of narrative that we've picked up along the way. I, I'd hope so, man. I'd, I'd hope that, uh, you know, the, the ideas are an expression of my life and that my life is, uh, you know, I always like to tell people that I'm in pursuit of what I've yet to become. And I think that that's a, an idea that we should permanently all have. Mm -hmm. You never arrive. You never arrive. 
you know, that, that idea of, oh, you've arrived even on like a broader societal level of like how you should organize things. Cause you have so many people, right. Who are, who are saying, you know, they want this outsourcing of the control of their emotions, right? That's what you're saying when, when you're saying someone offends you, you're essentially saying, you know, I expect you to control my emotions for me. That's so focused on what, what man is. And I think that both as individuals and as a society, we should be focused on what man could be. We should be focused on the light of man and throw folks. Yes, I personally, uh, one of the things I've become fond of saying over the past few years is misanthropy is gross. Oh, 100%. I think that anti-natalism, you know, that, that's, that's a charade that people put up to cope with uh, uncertainty and fear and just the kind of schizotypal things that are brought out by uh, the mimetic warfare that's going on in our culture. Fuck, if you, if you really buy into that shit, you're evil. You know? the, the mimetic warfare? Uh, no, but antinatalism or, oh. or misanthropy or something like that. That's meaningfully evil saying, I, I hate people. You know, that's, and a lot of the, the Marxism is, does manifest as a death cult. Oh, um, yeah. But then you have, you have people on the right who go down this whole black pill path right. where they kind of reject things to the extent that they, they get very embittered and kind of Darth Maulish. Sometimes I think that the red pill culture ends up almost being like feminism for men because <laughs> a lot of like the guys who get really hard into it and embrace it, at least in, in the last decade, basically there were dudes who couldn't score women and were kind of revengeful about it. So in that yeah. way, it was just like feminism and that it was something that circulated amongst ugly men who hated the opposite sex, just like feminism was kind of largely ugly women who hated the opposite sex. But then recently, you know, I see a lot of guys in this sphere you know, Alexander uh, Cortez, mm -hmm. you have guys like Solbra, these, these characters who are very uh, kind of howling void adjacent. Some of them will say things that's, it's almost like verbatim, like what I was thinking that day, I'll log on and, and you know, see maybe uh, a guy like uh, Brother Lobo on Twitter or something, say something that's like, well, that's what I was thinking today. And I've had people kind of reference this group. It's almost like where the intellectual dark web was before that had a name where right. people would say like, oh, look, it's, it's, you know, that group that's Joe Rogan and kind of like Jocko and Jordan Peterson. <laughs> you just, there wasn't a word for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Eric Weinstein had to say like, hey, we need to come up with a name before the media gives us a name that's not going to be favorable towards mm -hmm. us. So they came up with the intellectual dark web, which was in a lot of ways an acknowledgement of the darkness that was in humanity, you know, an acknowledgement of fundamental inequalities and the legitimacy of hierarchies and stuff like that. I think a lot of what, what this kind of group of adjacent characters is, is we kind of take that, that black pilled perspective for granted. We say, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, don't get caught up on that. With the white pill perspective, which mm -hmm. is what some people call it. And I, I think that's an inadequate and unfortunate name for it. I think it's about the potential of man, what we could be, the light in man. I like to think of it as uh, anthropos. Yeah, I like that too. I was just having this. Uh, I was just having this discussion in Ajax's private uh, Telegram channel about eight hundred guys, not that private, I suppose, but about the about the growth path from quote unquote blue pill, and you have red pill, and then you have black pill, and that sort of journey. 
And then black pill kind of builds on top of, of red pill. Black pill accepts that the red pill truths and determines that life and humanity are essentially irredeemable and the only choice is to check out. But then the white pill, or I guess the light pill, or the anthropic pill, or the anthropos, or sort of same terms for similar idea, although I do like, uh, I do, I keep thinking of the anthropic principle, which I think is probably spoken for, but the anthropos pill, I guess as you might say, accepts that the black pill perspective must be transcended and you cannot stay there, that that's a path of the journey uh, through disillusionment, through recognizing the darkness, and then you have to somehow climb up out of that and stand on top of it and, and look into the light. And then I submitted that there was actually a pill after that, which was the happy warrior pill, which I borrowed from Pat Stedman. And I know that he borrowed it from um, Wordsworth, maybe, because there's a poem called Hymn of the Happy Warrior or something like that. And that builds on top of the anthropos pill, which is to find joy in that acting and to find purpose in that acting, despite the, the black pill truths that might be all around us. You find, you find joy in existence and in uh, becoming marginally or meaningfully better every day. And that is, that is the, the muck and the mess that we've been born into, but we can't let it stop us. We have to transcend it. We have to move beyond it and find, and find purpose and joy in that process. Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, the black pill is, it's, it's an adolescent realization. Right. Uh, not necessarily that you are an adolescent when you have it, <laughs> but that it's a transitional, you know, realization of, oh, okay, everything, you know, is fucked. All right. You know, but how do you, how do you choose to respond to that? Do you become embittered and, and disempowered yourself? You know, no, I think that it serves almost as a forest fire that clears the garbage out mm-hmm. for new growth. That's the rebirth of something inside the individual to pass through that process, to pass through that initiation, really. You know, there's, there's different forms of male initiation, which have been removed from our culture, which is a separate, a separate conversation. But to be initiated into the darkness of the world and to really look at it is, it is an initiation. It is an uncrossable bridge. Like you cross it and you can't recross it again. You can't, you take quote unquote, the red pill. You can't unknow what you now know. And that is the essence of initiation. And you can't just sit there. You have to accept it for what it is and really take it into yourself and say, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to allow this knowledge and this perspective to destroy me? Or am I going to allow it to, or am I going to permit it or, or transmute it to fuel me? And I think that's everything that you probably try to do in, in the howling void with your writings and with your images is to take the, take the dark and to take the difficult and, and the struggle and to use it as, as fuel for this fundamentally masculine achievement of, of excellence. A hundred percent. The mind stretched by a new idea can never regain its original shape. And that's, that's exactly what I do. It, it was Jung who said, and I might butcher this by paraphrasing mm. it, but he said, uh, you don't become enlightened by imagining figures of light. You become enlightened by taking the darkness and integrating it. Mm-hmm. And then the back half of that quote is, but the latter procedure is disagreeable and therefore unpopular. A hundred percent. Well, I was never aiming for mass popularity with the Howling Void. Uh, if I if I wanted a a popular Instagram, I would have come up with a different intersection than Marshall Psychedelic. I might have done uh, Sex and Sushi or something. Of all the things that you've said during our conversation, the thing that most perked my ears up was the Marshall Psychedelic stuff. Was how you fuse those two things together because I have experience with psychedelics, with plant medicines, and stuff like that. So I've gone into that world many times, but I never really thought of it in a martial way. So I wonder if you could just speak some more about that. Yeah, well, that was 
like I said, with the original idea addressing you know, the howling void and in people individually and that we are suffering from as a culture collectively, that was the original purpose of the account. And it definitely was grounded in paleo principles, but I, I wasn't being nearly uh, so edgy as I might be perceived as being now because mm. uh, we were in a culturally different climate. Mm -hmm. uh, two years ago, the gears were in motion. It was, it's all very predictable, but, uh, I wasn't really on this whole reject modernity train yet. Uh, mm -hmm. that was originally what it was just about. I just wanted to meme this cross pollination between, uh, special operators and, uh, the, the psychedelic community. Now you have this, this massive millennial movement of millennials. I think it's because the, the mimetic package of woke culture is so sophisticated because it's taking Marxist theory that then was filtered through the Frankfurt School to replace power mm -hmm. uh, with the concept of economics. And then they infused it with all of the rhetoric from the French postmodernists like Foucault, Derrida, Lacan. So your average person, your average secular centrist American they recognize these social justice ideas like, hey, you can't have an opinion on, on this subject because of the color of your skin or because of your demographic of anything. Uh, we say, hey, that's actually backwards. Like on a common sense level, you can reject mm -hmm. it. You say we, we should be striving to judge people by the content of their character. We shouldn't be you know, categorizing people into ethnic groups. Because that's gonna, you're gonna be generating conflict like that. All of these, every time you create this in-group, out-group exclusion like that, you're gonna have a Newtonian counter effect, mm -hmm. and you don't want to wake that up. We've been trying to put that to sleep because I really don't have uh, any ethnic bias per se. I don't care about people's hardware. You know, there might be different specs on an individual level between you know me and my sister and my mom and and you know someone from this group and that group. What, what matters to me is the software that's running on it. That matters to me tremendously. Mm -hmm. What kind of cultural op operating system you're running. And these things spread like mind viruses. And the average person recognizes these ideas as toxic, but they haven't reasoned from first premises mm -hmm. because they, they don't have a telos. They can just say, well, that sounds bad. And social justice has this sophisticated back catalog of rhetoric that goes back, you know, past one or two rebuttals, and they can just kind of keep doing this regression back. And not everyone can Jordan Peterson their way through that situation because they aren't, you know, PhDs of psychology and philosophy and all that. They haven't written a thousand page maps of meaning book. Right. So they're being driven back to the only cultural mimetic complex that Westerners are really that familiar with that does have as sophisticated a back catalog as the cultural Marxists have, which I think is generally Christianity, mm -hmm. which I'm not a literal Christian at all, but uh, I do see a lot of value in the tradition. And you're seeing a lot of people being driven back to that, particularly orthodoxy seems to be very popular right. amongst millennials. You know, of course, it's very predictable that cultural Marxism is uh, generating a not-so-crypto-fascist response. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But I have a critique of this, this idea of reject the modern world, which I'm, I'm sympathetic to that idea. 
like I said before, you know, the return to first premises paleo principles, but in a paleo futurist way or trad futurist way where you're not a Luddite. But the fundamental framing of the question, I think, seeds this idea of the modern world way too much credit. There is no modern world. There's no magical Rubicon of sophistication and advancement. We're shuttled through the sky in flying tubes and we can sip lattes and ziggurats of smoked glass and chrome. But we are still talking monkeys, right? We're scared of the dark. We're running on hormones. We're violent when hungry or rapey. There is but one world and it's ancient, but one law and it's unbreakable. Everything else is merely a suggestion. And people might use various levels of coercion to back up those suggestions. But what can be and what isn't be is the law. It's, it's nature. You know, what can be will be. You know, I think the best articulation of this is probably the Melian dialogue that the Athenians gave to the people of Milos when you know, the Melians said, hey, you know, it's not fair for you to involve us in the Peloponnesian War. You know, we're, we're neutral. We declare neutrality and they appeal to all these kind of liberal enlightenment uh, kind of principles. And the Athenians had a very untypically Spartan response. They said, uh, the strong do as they will and the weak suffer what they must. And that's the one, the essence of the one law, the strong. Yeah, that's, that's the one law. The weaker yeah. meet the strong, and the strong do eat. I believe is how it's phrased in um, Cloud Atlas. So you know that doesn't mean that uh, any view is morally vindicated by its victory. It's a meta kind of statement that that transcends you know our judgments of reality. So if you want a moral view to prevail, you better first be dangerous. You know, there's no there's no virtue in being harmless. I see that as yes, there is one objectively verifiable law. But is there not more than that? I suppose we're getting into metaphysical kind of speculation and the difference between what is true and what is useful. Certainly the distinction between uh, weak and strong, the one law that you described is, is, is very useful. But I wonder, I wonder if that's the only truth. And I guess now we start to get into questions around Christianity that say, well, no, there's actually a higher law than that. There actually, there's a, there's a counterbalancing law in, in, in heaven or from God's perspective that would prevent an otherwise strong individual from taking advantage of a weak individual uh, to take one strength and to put it into service. And that's the, that's the story of, of, of Jesus Christ, of perhaps the strongest quote unquote man of all time dying actually in service for all humanity. Um, and while that can be taken to extremes of too much meekness of subservience and turn the other cheek is deeply misinterpreted. I think there's also a lesson in that, that I, I think is important to hang on to. And that I think people resonate with. I think that this is a profoundly important question, mm-hmm. right? Kind of the question yeah. because you have people as different as Nietzsche, you know, the kind of liberal contrarian polemicist, Christopher Hitchens, who was very famously, you know, like a, this edgelord atheist, but also one of the, the greatest speakers of the English language I've ever heard. Yeah. And then you have, you know, a uh, hippie psychonaut philosopher, Terence McKenna, who's probably the most influential person on my thought. They all identified one thing as the greatest threat to the human endeavor, and that was relativism, right? Mm-hmm. So. There's no relativism in the one law, but you bring up this idea of, all right, you know, the one law is true, but then why even pursue that idea of 
the morality beyond that? What is this idea of there being a moral vindication for something that's right and wrong? And, you know, people can say uh, Christianity is a, an operating system that addresses that. I think that myths as defining myths, you know, as kind of like timeless stories that are passed down through generations mm -hmm. that have a, a value. I think that myths are very much misunderstood in popular imagination mm -hmm. as, as fictive because they're not maybe literally true in every regard. But myths, I think, are, are maps of reality and that they mm -hmm. are subject to the same evolutionary pressures as an organism because myths aren't meant as pre-scientific explanations for how things work. I'm going to borrow from uh, Brett Weinstein's uh, explanation of this. If you had a tribe that said, hey, don't go by the swamp because there's demons that live there. That's not a terrible theory of how malaria works. Oh, yeah, I've heard right? this. Yeah. If, if you don't understand the reproduction cycle of mosquitoes, no, that's a very useful heuristic for the tribe people, hey, don't go by the swamp. There's a demon that lives there. And effectively, if you go by the swamp, you do get sick. You know, your life suffers from it. Mm -hmm. And you've committed a, a, a sin, right, mm -hmm. by breaking that heuristic and going by the swamp. And so you, you, you reap what you sow in that regard for disregarding the wisdom of your tribe. Why put it in the form of a story? Because people don't think in facts or numbers. Right. People think in stories. So we create these mnemonic narratives that contain these true descriptions of reality that might be articulating facts about systems that are too complicated for us to grasp with our primate mind. For people in that time period, it was the reproduction cycle of mosquitoes. You know, for people in our time period, you know, absolute truth. What is the universe? Is there life after death? What is the nature of God? These kind of questions, we can't really speak on them in like a definitive, you know, mechanical way. They transcend the level of complication and go way beyond the amount of information that we have. But we do have these stories that have been sculpted through use and been reiterated through all of these different generations and compounded into these hyper-dense mimetic packages that have all of these lessons in them that have demonstrably worked mm -hmm. as guiding civilizations with varying levels of success and varying strengths and weaknesses in varying contexts. You know, Islam might flourish in a situation where Buddhism doesn't flourish and vice versa. And they might have strong suits pertaining to different aspects of human flourishing. But there's, there's no question that these mnemonic devices contain functional truths about reality that simply because we can't articulate the mechanisms of them does not mean we can disregard them. You know, mm -hmm. that's throwing out yeah. the baby with the bathwater so much. It's such a, a, a ridiculous kind of adolescent atheist protest. Oh, you know, that's not, you know, literally a hundred percent true, you know, made by a rib and you know, mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. you're completely missing the point. Oh, congratulations. You passed seventh grade science. You you now I, I love the quote, I forget who said it, but uh the first sip of the natural sciences will uh leave you an atheist. But when you get to the bottom of the glass, mm -hmm. you'll you'll find God waiting for you there. 
and you'll find all these minds that uh, are like the minds that we most revere in science. Schrodinger, Tesla, like these guys are all mystics. You oh, know, yeah. Schrodinger and Tesla both talk about how the mind is a receiver. Mm-hmm. You know, how there is, you know, this one vibrational consciousness and human beings are, are kind of like neurons uh, in, in a universe that's experiencing itself in this one, you know, kind of natural mind. Newton, right? Newton was an alchemist when he wasn't inventing uh, calculus. Pythagoras and all these guys were considered scientists and they were deep mystics. Yeah, that's something that the reductionists will, uh, they'll usually kind of mock him for that because people, <laughs> yeah, of course, they take, they take alchemy uh, and they mischaracterize it in this very adolescent way. Oh, they were trying to turn lead into gold. And they take that sentence 100% literally, mm-hmm. which they, they make it seem like it was a, almost like a, a Ponzi scheme in the Renaissance. Right. Uh, rather than that, it was, you know, having any understanding of what the actual history and goals of alchemy was. And the idea of lead into gold is itself a symbolic statement. Right. It's a, you know about the transmutation of any kind of raw substance into something higher. You know, the fact that we as organisms are matter that assembles you know, the raw ingredients of the earth into increasing degrees of complexity. You know, that we imbue things with meaning. You know, we can think of a submarine and then make a submarine. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this, the second law of thermodynamics. You know, says that all systems decay into entropy. But if you look at coalescence of plasma into pre-subatomic particles, into atoms, into them fusing together into stars and the belly of whose furnaces were forged all the other elements that were then erupted out in supernovas and those elements then cloud and nebulas that form, you know, chains of stars that, you know, wisp up into galaxies and planets form around that. And, you know, you get nucleic acids and protocellular life and then cellular life. And, you know, you get your, your prokaryotes, your eukaryotes, your algaes, your crustaceans, your plants, your vertebrates, your conscious vertebrates, your self-conscious vertebrates, your global information technology civilizations you know that are capable of space flight every single one of those steps that i just listed was an increase in order of complexity mm-hmm. not a decay into entropy and that is completely ignored by the reductionist narrative you know a physics major will point out immediately that the conservation of that complexity is traded off in something called enthalpy mm-hmm. which is disregarding the main point, which is you're not explaining. You're, you're trading off the explanation of entropy for enthalpy, but you're not explaining what kind of force is impelling that ascension. Oh, and sure. I think that's the most interesting question that there is. It's the chief question because it flies in the face of what our um, scientism mm-hmm. tells us. Mm-hmm. Because science is a methodology of inquiry. It is not a worldview. What? It's not. Know, it's not really. <laughs> Science, it, it's, it's an investigation. <laughs> you know, so once, once a fact has been discovered, it doesn't belong to science. It belongs to philosophers to integrate <laughs> that within a larger worldview. Mm-hmm. Because science is incapable of saying what science should do. It can discover things, but you can't apply it to itself. The, the, you know, the idea of, okay, well, what should we investigate? 
What subjects are worth looking into? Should we develop AI at a breakneck pace without any kind of idea on this? Should we start gene editing children? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first gene edited children are already born uh, in, in China. So, oh, wow. Well, to go back to the, the entropy principle, you know, I often think that it's, it's our responsibility as, as men, as individuals to overcome entropy every day. That's what, that's what life is trying to do when we talk about all the reasons not to do the thing, to be unreasonable. To be unreasonable is to, entropy is a reason. To be unreasonable is to overcome entropy in your own life, to get up off the couch, to go do the thing, to go, as David Goggins says, take souls, to be excellent. That in itself, the whole drive up the mountain, up the face of the mountains, the way you described the, the, the Howling Void project, that is in itself anti-entropic. To, to become a higher, more complex being over the course of, of your life. Yes, your body will still decay into entropy after you die, but does your soul or does your being or whatever phrase you want to use, that doesn't obey the same laws. So when you talk about um, the one law of hierarchy and power, there is this second law that balances it. As I think through this, I think about the, the yin-yang symbol of Taoism. I think it's Taoism. You know, that, that describes it's Tao. It. it's Tao. Yeah. So there are these two laws that somehow have this interplay that fuse with each other that, that, and you can't separate one from the other, because if you just have this pure sort of spiritual evolution, well, you can't because then you're disembodied. That's not what it is to be on earth. But if you're just on earth alone and you're divorced from any spiritual principle, then you're lost. And then you're just, you're, you're, then you're, you're lost in hierarchy and, and pure animalistic competition. So you have to fuse those two together. And then I think also about, you're talking about martial psychedelics, like martial philosophy on its own, when coupled with psychedelics, fuses those two principles together, I think, in a similar way. Absolutely. You know, that's at least culturally, you know, representative of the subcultures that probably most embodied uh, yin and yang, mm-hmm. respectively, you know, and, and absolutely, you know, our, our daily battle is against entropy and absolutely that daily battle is participation in the divine act of creation. You know, the idea that you can have an idea in your head and then, you know, perform a series of actions that makes it real, you know, that is alchemy. Mm-hmm. You've created something that did not create before. You know, like if you look at a cell phone, no one in the world is capable of making a cell phone. Like if you're just naked in the woods, mm-hmm. no one in the world has the expertise to do that, That's right. to have the tools to extract. First, you have to be able to make tools to extract the ores, to melt down, to be able to make the vehicles that require to traverse the world to get the different ingredients. You know, it takes people whose whole lives are specialized in very niche fields. And it takes thousands of them collaborating together with thousands of people working in logistics and supply chains and blue collar workers on the ships mm-hmm. and the planes and and the designers and and the people making the glass and the people making the software, no one knows how to do it. So what you're holding is an impossible artifact Mm -hmm. when you hold a a phone and yet it exists. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We took something that didn't exist that does something impossible and it exists. That is the definition of alchemy, Mm -hmm. you know, transubstantiating the chaos into order. And what could be a more divine act than that? And this is something that is a perfect example of one of those things that we don't have the ability to articulate the mechanism of yet. But, you know, just like the universe's whole seeming trend of Nietzschean self-transcendence. And that idea of, you know, increasing the order, you know, that that's kind of what demarcates 
sacred spaces from profane spaces, you know, whether it's your workspace as a desk or whether you're entering uh, a Shinto temple or a Catholic cathedral or, you know, even, you know, uh, kind of almost like the, the autism of like rows of servers and like a server bank or something, wherever order becomes like hyper concentrated in that way, you know, those spaces are very psychologically powerful mm-hmm. to us. You sense that something is going on here. This environment is charged. There's a reason that they have this effect on us. That's almost like a concentration of, you know, for lack of a better word, you can call it uh, divinity there. And you, you feel that in the spirituality of those of those spaces and their effect on us, because that is a space of concentrated order in a more chaotic world. Oh yeah. The, the power of architecture in that way. You talked about your visit to New York city and for all the dehumanizing aspects of cities, when a, when a city is done properly, it can be profoundly humanizing in a very different way from a cathedral or in a very different way from uh, a vineyard or, or, or a cultivated, uh, a cultivated Japanese garden, more nature than nature, but to be inside a city and to be and and to appreciate how massively ordered that it can be can ennoble the human spirit. It just it just doesn't most of the time. Yeah, there's a a, a David Kilcullen book and another book. Uh, the Kilcullen book is called Out of the Mountains, and the other book was called uh, The Burglar's Guide to the City. And they both really hone in on this idea of the shitty the city shaping what happens there. Two quick examples of this phenomena. Uh, one would be, let's take 2007, uh, roughly, you know, the peak of violence in the Iraq war. Maybe maybe it was 2005. You know, where was the most dangerous city on earth? Was it Fallujah? It was San Salvador, El Salvador. <laughs> uh, why? Well, the Isthmus is very narrow there. Mm-hmm. And there is one north-south highway, one airport, and one seaport in the city, in, in the country, essentially. So 100% of the narco traffic from South America all had to converge in that one spot on its journey to North America. Mm, wow. And so the geography of that made that place the most violent place on earth. Another example would be New York City has very few bank robberies. LA has the most bank robberies of any city in the world. Mm. Why? Because New York City is laid out in a grid. If you rob the bank, it's very easy to just grid stuff off and trap you. Mm-hmm. Banks are built typically like waffle houses and gas stations and, and quality ends. They're built right by the entrance and exit ramps of highways because that's where the most people are kind of concentrated in their daily commute, mm. uh, hopping on and off the highway. LA has over 10,000 miles of highways. And they all are recursive and curve in on each other. You could drive for 10,000 miles and never leave the city, just switching lanes. So it was very easy for you to rob a bank, jump on a highway, and just disappear into a labyrinth. Mm -hmm. And this is why LA was the first city to get helicopters, because it was impossible to catch people once they got on the freeway system. Mm -hmm. It was was too Byzantine. And so adding the helicopter gave the police this kind of extra dimensionality, this superposition above it, so they could follow that. And you can see in that way that the architecture of the cities determines what's going to happen there in a way that has almost more effect than the individual decisions of the people who are there because they're only responding to the environment with the options that the environment presents to them. And you can really take lessons from that and apply it to you know how you lay out the interior of your own home. How are you designing your daily life? Like where's 
you know, your flow through your living room and, and your access to the kitchen and your bedroom and where you put weights and how much light is in your house. I mean, this all has psychological effects, but it also has effect on your movement through the space or how close or far you live to a gym or a jujitsu place or, or the grocery stores or how close you live to nature or your work. You're designing the shape of your life. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, the apartment that I'm in right now is it faces, it faces west. And I have a gorgeous view of the sunset every night. And once I got that, I was so stoked when this part apartment became available. Yes, because I could let light in and the other apartment they were offering me was quite dark and I wouldn't accept that. There's a boxing gym that I go to, boxing and jujitsu jujitsu gym. I do boxing. That's a five minute walk from my apartment. And I've designed my life in such a way, or I've been sort of, I got lucky in a sense, although I did choose this apartment building because the, that boxing gym was so close, but I've designed my life to sort of live in my own kind of pod. My apartment's very open, very spacious, high ceilings, very airy. And so as the world has kind of been melting down over the past nine, uh, nine months in a way, I've been thriving because I've designed my environment in such a way that it supports me in the ways that I need to. And it's like, oh yeah, I get my, I go pick up my groceries. I drop them in the trunk of my car and I don't have to interact with any of the masketarians. And, and so it's like, for me, <laughs> you know, the masketarians and the comorbidians, but uh, for, for me, it's just uh, while everyone else has kind of been freaking out, I've been kind of blessed in a way to live on this little island of sanity that I've also created for myself. And I, I don't know that people really appreciate that until they really take a step back and begin to become intentional with where they live and their immediate environment, potentially even the cities or states that they're in. Now we're all aware that the state, because state politics has such an effect on you know our, our everyday lives and where we can go and even city politics, but even beyond that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to watch the movie heat in a whole new way as you're talking about highways and bank robberies for sure. But and that's a powerful impact on, on anybody's life to understand the way that your environment, even to several degrees of, of physical removal from yourself is shaping your thought process is shaping your growth and evolution in subconscious ways. Absolutely. I, I hadn't heard, uh, masketarians or comorbidians, uh, yet. So <laughs> I made those up. I like both of those. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's the mask religion. Oh yeah, for for sure. I, I I can feel my testosterone levels drop when I put it on. Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, and thus, I don't put it on. Yeah, uh, unless it's absolutely essential, which it, it usually isn't. Correct. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't really want to jump into no to COVID. Hey, I think everyone has enough of COVID in their lives. No, totally. I would what like to steer steer clear of that but uh, you know yeah. I, I think it is it is relevant for the way that uh it's made really clear how how politics is local for sure but but beyond that you know it's 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 a, it's a subject that i would like to be beaten more to death i suppose yeah no your your point about you know architecting your life and, and curating your life this is you know, this is the fundamentals you know that that is how you kind of apply that's a perfect example of like the question where how do you apply the things you talk about in your daily life and you know, I give a spiel about, you know, San Salvador and narco trade and, you know, it turns into like, how do you set up your living room? Oh, you sure. Know? Well, these things uh, are not separate. You know, they, they don't manifest. They don't manifest outside of, of your mind. These are all parts of, of your mind. And so, of course, they all connect back in some, in some holistic way. It, it all scales fractally. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Every, you know, as, as above, so below and beyond, I imagine. <laughs> well, that's really funny because um, Clinton Wade, one of your, one of your followers on, on Instagram actually asked, what are your thoughts on esoteric teachings as above, so below, et cetera? I think, I think you probably answered all the questions that I chose as a matter of fact. 
you know, I saw that question. It's it's a little vague, right? Like right. esoteric teachings, you know, that's you know, anything from Tibetan Buddhism to, to Sufism, it's 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 too much stuff. I, I kind of address that I think with uh myths being maps of reality and anything that's you know lasted for you know that kind of multiple generation thing is a compounded iterative version that contains some functional truth in it that we might not be able to articulate the the mechanism of yet and some of those truths are more useful in certain contexts than in others it's learning to see them and appreciate the truths and extract them and apply them to our lives and and useful ways and i suppose in that way something can be both useful and true absolutely yeah. absolutely and that's kind of one of the greatest interests i i have is this idea of reconciling all of these wisdom traditions in a way where you can plug them in in a syncretic way and kind of help create the secondary telos beyond the one law where you say, okay, what should we, what should we apply it for in terms of a, of a moral direction? And I think in the confines of modernity, you know, it's a lot to ask people to, to swallow something on faith. And I think that that's probably one of the greatest utilities of psychedelics is that they don't require faith. Mm. Uh, it's, it's five dried grams away. I think that people often kind of misconstrue, this is a Terrence McKenna riff. I think that they, they misconstrue the, the story of doubting Thomas, mm. you know, the apostle who said, I'm not going to believe that, that Jesus is risen until I stick my wounds in his side. And then, you know, when Jesus came uh, and visited the apostles, you know, he said, oh, okay, Thomas, you know, s stick your finger in. And because of his, his doubt, because of his insistence on proof, he was the only apostle who actually got to touch the risen Christ. So I, I think that there's something to, to that reading of it. And, you know, that revitalizing experience of divinity and that uh, empathic experience that psychedelics seem to universally foster, I think that they are the ideal bedrock for the sacrament of a new kind of meta-religion. The question that's swimming around in my mind as you, as you talk about all this is, uh, Nietzsche said, God is dead and we killed him. Do you believe that during this era, we're going to bring God back from the dead, so to speak? I think... A lot of people, like I said, are, are being driven back to uh, traditional structures of the mimetic packaging of God, just in the face of the relativism of the woke, and they need some kind of rational uh, response to that. So you see the swell in orthodoxy. But yeah, I think it's, it's pretty crucial that we get over this adolescent, uh, mechanistic, hubristic, reductionist worldview. I think that, that that's the task that we have. I don't know if we'll be successful in that task, but I think restoring not necessarily the literal belief in how a, a fedora-wearing atheist might come at you for you know conceptualizing Yahweh as this patriarchal sky daddy, <laughs> but I think that we can acknowledge you know something at least all agree on meta-religious truths culturally, like the idea that there is, in fact, some things that are better than other things. There is a right and wrong. I mean, I have my own rather esoteric conceptualization of like five-dimensional deities that it actually functions in a completely secular way, 
kind of like how I talked about like how the phone is an impossible product mm-hmm. for humans to make, but it was made by this collective meta organism that comprises of all these different people. And I, you know, I would refer to that meta organism, you know, as well, it did something impossible that people can't do. And it consists of a bunch of individuals acting together as like one mind. So that's an example of a deity. And then I would say that you could have deities stacked on deities in a kind of Vedic way where those deities combine together to make a higher deity. And you could go all the way up until you have like a unitary universal deity but mm-hmm. without any reference to, to supernaturality. But that's my own pretty Byzantine conceptualization that I'm not you know, trying to be evangelical with to any extent. It's just a map. It's not the territory. Well, I, I actually agree 100%, and it's my experiences with with ayahuasca and with psychedelics and myself that have led me to that same conclusion. And I think J.R.R. Tolkien would agree with you if, if, you re- if you read the first chapter of The Silmarillion. That's essentially his conception of how the, the Middle-earth universe was created, was there was one higher deity, more powerful than, I suppose, all the others— but the the world was uh, was created. Perhaps the universe was created by a collaborative effort of all of the uh, lesser deities and the higher deity. And then uh, Melkor was as the representative of Satan or Lucifer, I suppose, in, in that portrait. And how Tolkien, who was a devout Catholic, weaves uh, weaves that in. It's beautiful and powerful and lyrical and only the way that, that he can. So I don't think that your your description is really all that Byzantine at all. I think I, I think Tolkien would probably agree with you to some extent. I certainly agree with you, and I think that just makes sense because as you look as you look down the tiers of consciousness, it's not uh, it's not stair stepped. It's gradient from humans down to dogs and dolphins and monkeys and bears and you know you can go all the way down into into fish and into and into insects and into single-celled creatures and into plants and into crystals which some people say have their own unique consciousness to them because they're highly ordered rocks take of that what you will but it's certainly gradient all the way down to inert matter so why should it not be gradient going upwards as well if as above so below and as below so above is is really true then the levels of consciousness above us but also be gradient and that just stands to reason just from observing the universe around us so we're just we happen to be situated right in the middle and to some extent cut off by our limited human awareness from from levels of consciousness significantly above ours but that doesn't mean they're not there and that doesn't mean that they didn't have an an influence in creating our creating our world and how to interface with them how to communicate with them reliably i suppose is is another question altogether yeah i mean i think you know if you look at you know, the, the three intellectual traditions that kind of influence my thinking the most spiritually. I mean, if you look at Greco-Roman Stoicism, if you look at early American transcendentalism, like Emerson mm-hmm. and Thoreau, uh, and if you look at uh, Vedic thought, whether in Vedanta or uh, Zen Buddhism or the Bhagavad Gita, you are reading the exact same ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, these things originated in different continents. They originated in different millennia. And they are saying the exact same thing, uh, which is what we're saying mm-hmm. right now. And, you know, the your reference that, you know, what brought you to this kind of view was, was ayahuasca, I think, is kind of an endorsement of what I was saying about, you know, the functionality where we need to get everyone on the same page because our, our greatest problem in the world is this you know, the mimetic warfare that we have is this mm-hmm. breakdown of reality. It's unexamined habits of behavior and the, the 
inheritance of structures that aren't serving human flourishing and how do you get everyone on the same page as quickly as possible? I think psychedelics are probably a cornerstone of any effort to do that. Probably the fastest way to kind of get everyone to have a, a similar experience and adopt a similar kind of viewpoint to, to what we just said. And it's not, it doesn't have to be adopted by everyone. I mean, if you got 3% of the population mm-hmm. on that, that's, that's a, a huge caucus of people. You know, 3% of America is over 3 million people. You know, if you get 10% of people, that's enough people to, to shift the opinion of the world. And it does seem to be having a moment. We are having a, a psychedelic renaissance right mm-hmm. now. Like I was talking about uh, the group of guys that I'm going to refer to as uh, Anthropos mm-hmm. or Anthro, I guess, if you want to shorten it. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're all pretty much articulating exactly what we're saying, mm-hmm. you know right now uh you know some of them lean more heavy into psychedelics i know uh i know ajak just kind of says you know if it does something for you it does something for you he's not necessarily a proponent of that but he's very much kind of on the same page with the mythopoetic kind of thought mm-hmm. and yeah we're just seeing a, a cultural moment for that and a lot of people are articulating things similar to what we're discussing right now so uh i mean that's that's an example of you know how there used to simply just be darkness but now there's stars so maybe uh you know the, the light's winning a, a kind of a cause for optimism mm-hmm. in the moment. And I do I do ultimately land in that in that perspective that the light is that the light is winning as as paradoxical as it, as it may seem. I do believe that light, the light is winning and humanity is advancing towards some sort of apotheosis. Who knows when or or when we'll get there what that will look like, but I do believe we're heading in that direction. As do I. As do I. I think I think it may be even more cyclical than that. Mm. I know uh Alan Watts had this story where, you know, if, if you were omnipotent and omnipresent and uh, knew everything, what would your primary experience be? And, you know, he said it would be boredom. So what would you do? You would, you would make this red button that you would press that said, surprise me. And you, you press it and you explode into a thousand little particles. And then, you know, it's, you're playing peekaboo with yourself, but you don't know it for billions of years as you reassemble into that one thing again. And then the second you're the one thing again, you're inescapably bored. So you just explode yourself again. And this, you know, that kind of gets uh, at Nietzsche's idea of uh, eternal recurrence or the, uh, the Vedic idea of, you know, cyclical creations or almost even the Norse Ragnarok kind of thing mm-hmm. where it just goes on and on and on forever. Well, I do want to acknowledge that, uh, that we're coming up on, uh, I think we're over two and a half hours at this point. And I just want to acknowledge everyone who's listening that's that's hung in with us this long and uh i i hope that everyone is enjoying the conversation as much as i am i i presume mr howling boy that you're enjoying it as well oh yeah man it's great to there's so much more that you can convey with tonality and, and communicating you know and there's just more dimensionality to the expression than tapping it out you know on a screen the flow of information gets kind of strangled in that choke point so to be able to kind of flush it out, especially some of these these kind of higher abstract ideas when people can't really see you phrase them from multiple perspectives, they can raise a lot of questions and be be hard to intellectually digest, I think. So if anyone is curious enough to sit through this, I think, yeah, maybe it, it, it's helpful. 
Oh, I think without a doubt, there'll be people that are that are listening and that are engaged and, and hopefully have Google up and are, are are researching all the things that we're that we're talking about because this conversation, this is the only way to really have the kind of conversation that we're having, you know, moving towards some sort of uh, some sort of apotheosis as you begin to talk about that subject and things move towards, I suppose, some sort of conceptual or singularity, it begins to draw in all these other influences from from life. That's my experience, is when I begin thinking about my own philosophies about life and existence and and uh, planes of reality higher than, than the one that I currently live on, I have to draw from all the information of my entire, my entire existence, all the thoughts and impressions that I have access to, the books that I've read, the information that I've picked up along the way. It's pull it on my pocket and dust it off like, oh, that's relevant. And I think that's the way these conversations kind of go. It's, is it, it has to be uh, syncretic. You have to pull all these things together. You have to have a synthesis to create a, a whole human being. That And the reason why I go through this exercise just with myself regularly, although not to this depth, is because when I establish, when I establish and reestablish this core within myself, I suppose my own first principles about what I believe, I can act from that place then I know how to act from that place. What do I believe? Why do I believe it? How did I assemble this worldview so that I can make this next decision? What, what is the, what is the Archimedes said, give me a solid point on which to stand and I will move the world. And so I continually recreate this solid point within myself to, to try and move the world, to try and move my world. And it's actually one of the things I'm most proud of that I've accomplished in my life is to have a philosophy that links me from the above to the below. That helps me orient my decisions in terms of the ground level. What am I getting up and doing today to the higher sort of cosmic force of, of collective human evolution? And when I achieve that for myself to a satisfactory degree, although it's always an ongoing process, but when I achieve that to myself, I knew that I had accomplished something really, uh, really special with my life that I could say, like, I'm actually really proud of that. And I'm proud of the man that I've become because I underwent that effort. So to have this conversation I would like to think that as both of us who have gone through that process in our own way, you know, and our roads kind of converge in a way that it might be informative for other men that have gone through the same process or encouraging for men that are on that process or even informative for men that have never even conceived that such a process exists. Certainly the way that the way that people respond to the the content that you produce, although I don't like that word, but that respond to the the words and the images that you produce shows that that journey has value. You've created that value for men, even though your long and winding road, you know, led you to an unexpected point of being uh, of being an Instagram. I don't even. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to insult you with the label. Don't say it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Don't say it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, an Instagram artist is artist okay. <laughs> That's fine. Okay. Yeah. But even though I, I, I don't think you would have expected that, um, your life would have taken you to that point, but it did your telos led you to, maybe it's not your telos to be the howling void on Instagram, but certainly your own telos has led the, the product of your journey has led to this enormous benefit for thousands of people. And so people can see in our dialogue, how that all comes about. Yeah. I mean, it's that 720 sphere of development you know if, if you are reasoning from first premises it does address everything and you know you need to have that foundation you know which is why you know i i have you know this is the story about uh being shoe pill a catalog on the page right because that's your contact with the ground that is your foundation everything you do comes from your feet and you know the effects mm. from that flow all the way up you know the chain of your physiology that's why working out and nutrition is kind of like the basis, the same way that 
martial prowess is the prerequisite that you have to be able to secure before you can pursue any kind of higher airy fairy kind of actualization what your body is made of what is in your gut you know 90% of the serotonin that you think with you know that's in your gut that's affected by your gut fauna that's determined by the foods you eat you know while hop around all these different subjects from nutrition and you know the idea that if if you're eating something that comes in plastic or a box you know you're you're fucking up you're probably a good heuristic if you're you know shopping at a, a traditional grocery store is just orbit around the aisles mm-hmm. every everything worth eating is around the aisles you know the plants and the animals unless you're jumping in to grab like some coconut oil or uh, you know some seasoning just stay off the aisles you know so nutrition and, and fitness and you know I'm not a, a a coach in any way you know but I I have reached a level of of training with that where I don't operate off of any, you know, set plan. I know exact where my weaknesses are and can just organically design my own programs as I go to address what I need just because I guess after, you know, 15 years of training, you know, I have come to a holistic understanding of that process, you know. Anyone when they first subject themselves to any kind of training, they usually need a pretty rigid thing because they don't know what they're doing, mm-hmm. but you know, ma- mastery comes freed from that it's more fluid and i can you know just share what i know about that and a lot of people have been kind of messaging because the page does get lost uh or not lost i don't want to say lost but it does focus a lot on higher abstractions a lot Mm -hmm. and there is there is a lot of questions particularly from younger guys who kind of want they really value the perspective and they're inspired but they're they want like the ground floor they want to like the the make your bed level kind of thing, uh, largely probably because they they live in this world that doesn't have uh, masculinity that their fathers maybe weren't there or maybe their fathers didn't know how to be men themselves. I I don't necessarily think that making your bed is that important. I've had great, very productive days without making your bed, but right. I think yeah, uh, your kitchen sink is pretty important. <laughs> I, I agree. Think, uh, I think as goes the sink, so goes your life. Because if you let one fork in there, that you can rationalize a spoon, a plate, another plate. By the time your sink's full, you can't. You now now you have to clean something before you can eat. So you're less likely to do that. So you're more likely to go eat out. You're more likely to get fast food or something. You're less likely to train. You compromise. I think that the sink is kind of the center of your life. It's where you get your life force. You know your food your utensils and everything unless you're just so based that you just eat with your hands not on a plate at all you just run out into the forest and take down a a fucking elk with your face yes that's a new level of uh you know raw solar chattistan right there but uh (laughs) unless you're really face murdering an elk build uh you probably (laughs) I think your sink should uh, your sink should be perfect. Don't compromise on it at all. You know, that's a, a practical level of ground floor advice. And I'll probably open some kind of parallel thing soon that uh, will address more of those grounded daily life things uh, uh-huh. for for the younger guys or for anyone who's kind of concerned with that and to see exactly and address how do the, the higher abstract things kind of plug into practical everyday shit of hey like i'm a guy walking around breathing 
interacting with women. Obviously, I have some problems with the way modernity is structured. Like, how do I go about actually making my life better and uh, concrete steps? Let it be entered into the record that elk pilled is now a thing. Oh yeah, man. I think I think you know with uh, with game animals, in terms of what you eat, usually everything in life that's hard is more rewarding, right? Yeah. So you know you don't want the low hanging fruit. You know chickens that you can walk around. You could literally kill them by stomping on. You know, obviously, you know, stepping up to like ungulates, that's, you know, a little more of a challenge there. But, you know, cows still just kind of graze. That's pretty easy to take down. I think there's a, probably a lot more to the nutritional value of, of game animals that run around that are harder to catch. You know, mm. probably the harder to catch it is, there's probably far more of a reward metabolically to, to that meat. And there's literally zero science to back up what I just said. <laughs> I just have a hunch that reality is structured in such a way that that's how it works. Oh, yeah, I totally, I totally agree. And to your sink point also, I feel like surfaces are a huge, a huge deal as well. That there's your sink and then you're keeping surfaces clear, like countertops and desktops and stuff like that is probably really important to everyday, everyday health as well. Oh, absolutely. That's, you know, we kind of address that with the idea of, you know, those sacred spaces being demarcated from the profane and certainly your own hey, your own house better be, you know, a sacred place for you. I hope you're not, I don't know, just letting the cookie crumble as it falls uh, in your own abode because your life follows the shape of your environment and your life is going to crumble exactly how that cookie crumbles. Mm -hmm. Curate your environment, curate the things that you expose your mind to, curate your peers. Your diet consists of more than what you eat. It consists of, you know, your information diet, Mm -hmm. your environmental diet. Mm -hmm. And that's all those things kind of combine and become the constituents of, of what you are. And we're fortunate to, to live in a situation of abundance enough. And that's something the, the black pill crowd doesn't really appreciate is really how much abundance we have and how much freedom we have. It really is a boon to, to be able to, to choose and curate our worlds the way we are, to be able to go on Instagram and find all these other thinkers or, or have all these resources and to be able to structure our lives basically however you want. You know, like there's so much opportunity here to voluntarily choose, you know, the discipline that you subject yourself to. Uh, We're so fortunate. And I think that gratitude is the foundation of all positive experience. That's that's the bedrock. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people who have this kind of resentful mindset about life, they're really tearing out the foundation of their own potential for positive experience and probably positive effect on the environment as opposed to just really having just every day kind of thinking about the things that you're truly grateful for that just, you know, 30 second practice can change your whole day, can change how you respond to your whole environment. When you just keep in mind, you know, how blessed we are and have that, that grateful perspective. That's sort of the second law. You have the first law of, of hierarchy and, and the first law of, you know, the, the strongest, maybe the strongest win the strongest survive. But then there's also to acknowledge the existence of the second law fundamentally comes down, even though it's something that we can't understand with our rational minds. It's something that we can feel. It's something that we can obey. It's something that we can observe in, in flashes or even or even apprehend in, in a, some sort of supersensory way. But gratitude is is the acknowledgement of that second law, is how I think of it. Even even though different cultures around the world have different ways of articulating it they all acknowledge in different ways that there is this higher law 
and gratitude is the acknowledgement of ex- of his of its existence. Absolutely, man. I think you're you're dead on with that. Well, I'm coming to the end of my my time to be able to talk, but this no, is... it's it's about that time. There's only there's only so much that you can. Uh... You know, we, we, we work in cycles. We think in cycles, you know, I feel like, I feel like we are on the descent. So for sure. You want to yeah. wrap this up? Let's wrap it up. We got there though. We got there for sure. We landed the plane. Oh, hell yeah. We, we, we tapped a lot of subjects. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> Not all of them. Not all of them. Maybe, maybe we did a, a 360 two dimensional loop, but we didn't, we didn't do the sphere, you know? Uh, okay. Always room for improvement. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Where can people go to find out more about you and, and what you do? I got the Instagram page, The Howling Void. There's underscores between the words. Recently, just put up a Twitter. I'm going to be being uh, far more active on there. Didn't really jump on that during the election because it'd just be drowned out by the noise. But that's just at The Howling Void. No underscores in there. There's a website that's being built right now, but that's not live yet. So stand by. Excellent. This has been really fantastic. Thank you for one of the most fulfilling conversations I've had in a long time. Oh yeah. Like, like I said, it's, it's awesome to converse with people who appreciate thought. Awesome to kind of expound on these ideas with a little bit of extra dimensionality. And, uh, it's an honor to, to be invited on the podcast and, uh, you know, be cast as a peer to these other thinkers, guys like Tanner Guzzi and stuff like that. So it's, it's a, it's an honor. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.